All right. Happy Monday, everybody. TGIM. Thanks, God. It's Monday. It's five o'clock somewhere. Uh, let's address the elephant in the room. Uh, Edgar's not here with us. Uh, Ed, hope you're feeling better. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, he doesn't have COVID. He's just under the weather. How many sick days do we get? I still don't know. Uh, us or Ed? Each of us. And then. I mean, I gave him one of my sick days already, so uh, he's uh, he's excused. But Ed, in all, in all seriousness, we hope you feel better, man. Uh, the fact that he had three people sick in the house and he was able to kind of dodge it like the Matrix and it finally caught up to him after all this time, I mean, that's off to you. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we have a very special show today. Uh, we're going to be touching base on uh, a lot of things in Armenia, in Artsakh. And I want to thank uh, Edgar and Vegan for taking time out of their money and rejoining us again. Uh, last time you guys were on was September, and I looked it up, September of 2022. So, a little over two years. Yeah, just oh, no, 22. No, 22. 22. Oh, a little over so, a year. Little ago, over, yeah. little over a year ago. So, uh, you know, a lot has changed at the time uh, when you guys were on. We, we talked about, you know, the move to Armenia, the process of moving to Armenia, Ed, Edgar moving to Armenia, uh, our Edgar's process of possibly, uh, you know, making that move as well. Uh, a lot of kind of back and forth, but, you know, a lot has happened since then. And we kind of want to touch with Vigan a little bit uh, regarding that. Uh, what, what What's going on in Armenia? What's going on in Artsakh? Because, you know, all of this, uh, you know, with the war that went on, and refugees and people fleeing their own homeland coming to uh, Armenia now, proper Armenia, a lot has changed, not only in uh, whatever is left of Artsakh, but in Armenia as well. So kind of touch a little bit on that before we get into a lot of uh, the other things, because uh, a lot of people don't know that you left America to Armenia with your family. Yeah. Um I don't know. Um, when you say a lot has changed, it's, it's extremely relative because, um, you know, it's, it's not us that we should, uh, that we should think about. It's not ourselves. It's, it's, it's the lives of uh, all the Artsakhsis who have, uh, this is like, you know, this isn't the first, this isn't the second, this isn't even the third time. I know people who have basically been displaced forcefully for you know, four times in the past three years. And uh, we say it and we just, you know, we forget about it, but it's it's unimaginable what's happened to these people in the past four years alone. Not the not to count the fact that they've been basically struggling for the last thirty years to live on on uh, the Artsakh, basically territory of Armenia, and, and uh, so it's been it's been um, more than difficult. It's been you know um, basically I was I remember talking to my family when I was uh, standing in Gornizor on I can't remember the day now September. 24th or something and uh, it was like four o'clock in the morning I was I came out of the tent for a moment to get some fresh air and people were coming from Artsakh and I I remember immediately what I felt and what I it was the same images that we've, we've all seen the genocide images you know the scenes of the genocide from 1915 and uh, that's that's what it felt like that's that's Basically, people were, um, you know, uh, walking, uh, you know, the uh, the ninety mile road. People were coming on on in their cars uh, and on trucks in the bed of a truck with you know three month old babies, um, completely starved. I mean, not only they hadn't eaten much for the past ten months, but 
literally the, the, the last, you know, few months in the past, the, the, the previous few weeks, and the fact that they were on the road for 40 hours, 36, 40, 45 hours, going through that ordeal is, uh, no matter how much I try and understand it, it's unimaginable. It's, it's uh, totally um, beyond, our, beyond us. And uh, so what's changed for these people? Everything. I mean, um, they, they feel out of, out of place right now. I mean, I talk to them every day. I, I, I'm with them every day in Armenia. And uh, they feel like they're, they're just not where they're supposed to be. And uh, I think for most of them, they haven't, it hasn't, hasn't really sunk in yet. They don't, I, don't, I don't think they're realizing what's, what's happened. Um, this, is, this is worse than the worst. So, and it's not only worse than the worst for us, but it's, 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 uh, it's, it's what none of us would uh, imagine in our wildest nightmares. So, um, so all we can do is, is work with them. And, and the, the biggest thing we can do is support them morally. Because financially, yeah, they need major financial support. And there are many organizations and the government and they're getting a lot of support that there's, they're not getting enough support, but they're getting a lot of support. But, um, that most people don't realize how much moral support they need, um, cause they feel alone. They feel out of place and, uh, they feel like everything is lost for them. Nothing matters. Nothing counts. Uh, and I'm not even talking about the families and the wives and, and, um, all, everyone, everyone who has lost a member of the family. Many in on September nineteenth and twentieth, and many more in two thousand twenty and, and before that. So, so yeah, it's it's yeah, it's things have changed for these people for for our compatriots from Artsakh. Really quickly, going back, you said you walked out of your tent to to see you know people walking, you know, from Artsakh. What do you mean by that? what do you, what did you mean by that by by walking out of your tent to get fresh air? We were. I traveled to uh, Gordy's Gordnizor on September 22nd, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the minute, uh, the day after, basically on, uh, uh, I could be wrong here, but I think it was on September 21st when it was very obvious that same afternoon that uh, Artsakh was going to be forced evacuated. And uh, so I, I traveled to Gordy's on the next morning, basically the next morning on the 22nd. And um, with my my friend, one of our uh, board members, and uh, started making arrangements to, to basically receive everyone, at least everyone that we knew, and everyone else for that matter, every Artsakh team, but uh, because of the fact that um, we have a lot of friends in Artsakh, uh, we're talking hundreds of them. So we had to make arrangements, whether it was making you know, meals, accommodations, hotels and you know for temporary stay at least for one night two night stay in Goris and Sisian. so we went that day came back the next morning or the next afternoon and then that was either the 21st or the 22nd and then the very next morning I went back again and I stayed until the 20 afternoon of the 29th and during that stay we were receiving everyone uh, many of them didn't even know where to go. I mean, they, I had to literally meet them on the street, on, on the street corner in Gordis, uh, basically just stop them. Cause I, I didn't, they didn't know where they were going. They didn't know what direction Yerevan was. Um, so, and there were just, you know, people, if you, if you don't count anything else, the fact that they hadn't slept, slept for 40 years, that they had been 40, 40 hours, they had been driving for the last 40 hours. Just imagine that under that stress and starving 
Um, so, so the first two days I was, uh, you know, I was there anyway, and I was, we were um, meeting all of our compatriots and friends. But um, so the first two days, the Armenian Red Cross had a, uh, a setup in Gornizor, where that was the f- first line in line. You know, that's where everybody was. We were everybody was being registered, so we were uh, welcoming everyone and registering them and giving them food and drinks and everything. And then from there, that's about I don't know, I could be wrong, but maybe 15, 20 kilometers uh, towards Artsakh from Gordis. It's uh, it's beyond the Derhamik, so it's right next to the border. Uh, so and then. The next, the third day, they told us we had to go back to Gordis and they set up uh, the uh, theater building in Gordis, the Armenian Red Cross. So as volunteers, we moved to the theater building, so 24-7. And I used, we were usually doing the um, 10 p.m. to 12 noon shift, so 14-hour shifts. So uh, literally thousands of people were coming and, and uh, we were registering them. We were helping them every way that you can. And Many of them had lost their relatives and kids, and it's just, it was a mess. I, I cannot describe the scene. So, um, Pri- so that's where it was. Prior prior to the blockade, because, you know, there was a 10-month blockade of anything going in and out of Artsakh. What were the talks as far as government officials, the media in Armenia and in Artsakh? Because here it was more of, you know, people saying, Oh well, there's some food and some water getting in. Uh, there's some private companies that are able to cross the border. What were the what was the communication via the government and the media there compared to here? You mean in Armenia? Yes. Well, um, the blockade, which started on December 12 in 2022, uh, went through several phases. The first phase was when we had enough um, of everything for the next, you know, for the following few weeks or even months, depending on what we're talking about. So, for example, our organization, we kept, you know, we kept, uh, you know, going on with our construction, kept going with our construction until March, sometime in mid-March. That's when uh, there was no more cement left in Artsakh. And and we had a lot of uh, rebars and and, uh, steel and everything else, so wood, Construction would so um, so we were we were doing okay as far as that so no one knew what the next day was going to bring to us so um, we kept going until you know until we had to stop there was no diesel there was no uh, gas uh, for our workers to get to the job site in Nachijavanik but uh, we we were creative let's put it that way and we found ways to get that um, get the fuel. So, uh, same for the trucks and same for the tractors and, but until March we were able to continue. Um, and, and most construction stopped in January, I'd say 99%. And they even did a Artsakh public TV, even did a piece on us. And we were the only, we were the only job site in, in Artsakh in March. That was actually operating in, in the middle of the winter. Or somewhat and, and operating. Fully operating. Oh, in, really? Yeah. Until March, fully operating. We had like 30 people working. So we're talking in March, and uh, and there was a lot of talk at the time about whether we should even show it because then the Azeris would say, you know what, you guys are saying you're starving, but you know you guys are building homes. Uh, people who are who starve don't build homes. And uh, at the end, the decision was made to go ahead and show that 
uh, reportage and, and they did. And, uh, and I think it was the right thing to do. Um, but that phase was quick, quickly over by March. Um, things got more difficult. So in, in March, April, May, um, everybody was contemplating, you know, the next winter, the coming winter. So, um, they could not make preparations for the winter. Um, and they knew that the winter was going to be harsh. And so we started providing other assistance types of assistance to the population, things like, uh, beehives and, and, uh, and various, I guess, um, uh, assistance programs that we did to keep the agriculture going. And, and, uh, and just before the September 19th attack, um, during the few weeks prior to that, during the month prior to that, we had made arrangements to, uh, to supply wood, firewood, to several communities, including the four Shushi communities and uh, several communities in Mardagird as well as the city of Mardagird. So we had made some major, major plans and uh, coordinated everything with our volunteers as, uh, as well as the uh, local officials in various communities and the uh, region of Mardagird. Uh, the only problem was not the wood. The problem was getting the fuel to get to get to the mountains and cut the wood and bring it back to the cities and towns. So it was just the diesel and the, and the gasoline. So the wood itself was available. Obviously, you could cut the trees down, but uh, we couldn't get that fuel. So even even then, we had actually found the fuel and, and uh, somehow, and uh, so that's so we we had programs that basically um, assist the population to survive during the winter, and. Uh, so that's um, that was the last phase, the last few months. I want to say the last two two months of the uh, of the blockade were such that um, even people who had livestock, either either their livestock was salt, slaughtered by that time, they had eaten their livestock because they couldn't keep it because they didn't have any food for the livestock, whether it was chickens or cows or or pigs or whatever else, or the livestock they had kept basically was unedible because, uh, enough, you know, I used to malnourished, talk, malnourished. I mean, you look at these chickens, they were, they were, there was nothing left on them. Yeah. So they were not worth anything as livestock. Um, so it was, uh, it, there was no more bread. Bread was being made by, uh, you know, they had no flour, so they had to get creative and make bread out of other seeds and whatever they could get their hands on. There was no cooking oil. There was no other, you know, there was basically, it was, the last three months was real starvation, literally. And um, by September 23rd, 24th, when people started arriving in Goris, um, there, there's no question, it was undeniable that um, anybody and everybody who, who crossed that I knew, hundreds of people, had lost, I'd say, at least uh, 30, 40% of their weight. It was a major weight loss. Uh, it was... Uh, and that, that includes kids, that includes uh, sick people, that includes the elderly. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to describe. I mean, but, I can't even wrap my head around, you know, go, having children go to bed on an empty stomach, wake up in the morning, not have food to eat. It's just, it's, un, it's unbelievable what these people went through. And, you know... Uh, I feel betrayed by, you know, the world because it, it, they kind of bat an eye to it. It was like nothing happened there. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, the old saying goes, um, 
who he's whoever's strong um is right so um i guess in this case that was uh true so we were not strong and whether it was um you know in terms of financial might or military might we let it we let ourselves down uh we let our people down in the last 30 years and uh and at the same time uh the enemy was uh, not sitting idle they were preparing for the next phase of the war and uh i mean the bottom line is it, it was not anybody's fault except ours all these years and i've said this over and over again it, let's not look anywhere else besides ourselves when it comes to blaming someone not that i want to play the you know the blaming game but the fact is that we're the only ones to blame and if we want to as soon as we realize that we can act accordingly uh, from today on. So if we want to get things done the right way for our country, we need to realize that uh, it all hinges on us and what we do and how we treat our own people and, uh, you know, and how we, uh, how we, how protective we are of what we have today. I mean, you know, look at the Palestinians. They don't, they're fighting for a country they don't, they don't have. I mean, they have their country in their, in their hearts and minds, but they don't really have an independent country. We've had an independent country for 32 years and look at, look at what we've done with it. So we haven't appreciated what we have. We haven't appreciated, um, you know, 3000 year old Shushi. Um, after 28 years of liberation, we maybe at best, we had 3000 people living in Shushi and, and, uh, and those people who lived in Shushi, you know, they, they lived in the vast majority of them lived in dire conditions. So that's how we lived in our historic towns and our, the towns we call, you know, the heart, the, the heartland of, of Armenia, you know, and uh, the cultural center of, center of Artsakh and all those great speeches we give. The fact is, we didn't actually live those speeches. We just gave them. Was the United Nations was present there, right? Or no? Uh, United Nations was present through UNICEF. UNICEF was, and then we worked with UNICEF. Um, I met with their uh, director, in Goris, they had temporarily opened an office in Goris, and the UNICEF office in Goris was financing, uh, and they were also also helping us support our heroes, and they were also financing the operations of the Armenian Red Cross. So that's the money was coming mostly, or at least partially, if not mostly, from the UNICEF funds. But they were not themselves uh, involved in the operations, the assistance operations. So the emergency funding of uh, the Army and the Red Cross, a lot of it I know came from the UNICEF. So in that sense, yes, they were involved. Because, I mean, what is the purpose of United Nations? Are you asked the, the world kind of um, turned an eye on Artsakh, Armenia, but there's, there's millions of people right now being slaughtered in China as we speak. There's hundreds of thousands in Africa being displaced and slaughtered as we speak. There's genocide's always going on. Um, to say is one is more important than the other, obviously for us, what happens in Armenia is always going to be far more important than what's going on anywhere else. But the purpose of the United Nations is to to unite the nations. It's to to be able to bring some type of peace and humanity, right, to to the nations of the world. And that's why I'm trying to understand what role did they play other, other than, because if there was, they weren't allowing med medication deliveries, essential foods, um, water, gas, these are things that 
human beings need in order to survive. What 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 else were they? What what role did they play? Well, fact is, um, I know for a fact that even medication. You're talking about medication. Forget food. Medication is for the sick, right? I mean, healthy people don't take medication, right? So uh, there's nothing more human than providing medication to the sick people, uh, and whether it's babies or the elderly or any anyone in between. So twice on two occasions, support our heroes provided large amounts of medication um, to Artsakh during the blockade. And um, both times we had to be extremely creative and basically cheat and, and uh, because it was, it was, you know, the Azeris wouldn't let it go through. Basically they, they, they would not let anyone bring any medication through the border. And, and uh, despite their, their lies and claims, their, you know, they, they kept saying, no, no, no problem. You know, we're, we're humane and, and all this. But the fact is that uh, it was forbidden to take any kind of medication. And uh, like the second time, um, now that it's all done and over, I can, I can say this. Um, that, that I remember the second time we had, um, we had a list of what everyone needs and the four villages in Shushi. So literally I was talking to the four, the elderly of the four villages and we made a complete list. And then we started gathering all that medication in Yerevan. Then we sent it to Goris. Some of it came from Goris, from different pharmacies in Goris. And uh, so we put it all together, and the uh, Red Cross said we can't take it. The first time they took it, but it was in small portions, and it took like a month and a half to take it through and because they, they had to basically put it in their own pockets and whatever, Red Cross, cross workers and small portions. But uh, the second time they said, we're just not going to take it. So because, uh, you know, these areas were basically – cutting them off from taking anything over. So even their own supplies. So we basically got creative and, and uh, basically distributed that medication to people who are going to Artsakh, people who were stranded in various regions of Armenia, you know, and so there were close to 10, 15 people going every other day. And those people, basically we, we gave every one of them just a few boxes of medication and they put it in their own bags and, and took it up took it across and then they had to deliver it to a point gathering point in Stepanagert and it was all gathered in Stepanagert over a period of a month. And then we started delivering to the needy. So, um, it was, uh, yeah, they basically said no medication, no nothing. So you, you, you know, you could, you could be sick and you could die. That's, that was the Azari way. That, that's the Turkish way. Well, we know that. I mean, that's the way it's been for 600 years. And these areas weren't those 15 or so travelers every other day. These areas weren't, um, interrogating them or inspecting what they were coming in with or how, how were they able to do it? Well, they if, took the medication as their own. They said, it's, it's mine. I'm, I take this medication. So that's, that's how we did it. Wow. Okay. Um, so, I mean, the, during the first few months of the blockade, it was a little <laughs> easier. So we, we were able to send a, uh, some supplies, uh, some critical supplies, uh, through using helicopters and various means and, uh, but things got, you know, tougher and tougher, and, and the strength, the, the, uh, the, the, the basically the, the rope got tighter and tighter over the first uh, three, four months, five months. Beyond March and April, things got really tough. And by summer, um, it was just uh, extremely hard to survive, literally. People had to go out, and my friends were going out three o'clock in the morning, waiting in line for bread, for one loaf of bread, three o'clock in the morning. And they would either not get the bread or get it by noon. 
And it, if you can't, even can call that a piece of bread, of course, that wasn't even bread, but whatever, whatever it was, it was called bread. They had to wait in line, um, basically seven, eight, 10 hours and get just one loaf of bread. And, you know, their neighbor was an 80 year old lady and she couldn't go wait in line eight hours, 10 hours. So they had to share that bread with the lady, with the neighbor. So that's, that's the kind of life they lived for months. The, the fact that since, since you spent so much time with, with the outsides of people there, what, what was their mindset like? Because at, during those was it nine, nine months, nine and a half months, technically, the, the blockade, during those nine months, was there ever a point, was it, let's say, two weeks into it, a month, three months into it, where they realized okay, we're not going to get out of this. Um, we have to give up our land. It's inevitable, whether it's now or seven months from now or them just killing all of us. Somehow, some way, we have to give this up. Um, what, what was their mindset like? And, and if they did know that eventually they had to be displaced and move to Yerevan, proper Armenia, um, why didn't they, was there an opportunity to just wave the white flag and say, listen, instead of starving for nine months, maybe a month into it, let's just pack up and leave. I mean, what was that like? Well, first of all, um, no one that I know, literally no one that I know. And I was in touch with Artach throughout those months and with various people of various classes and, and uh, professions and uh, whether it was, you know, ministers or uh, soldiers on the front line. And I can tell you guys with all honesty, not a single Artsakhti um, imagined leaving Artsakh under any condition. And even after September 19th, uh, people were just like, okay, we'll, uh, we'll be displaced to Stepanagert for a, couple, a day or two. And many of them actually left their towns and villages thinking it was going to be a temporary thing for a day or two, and then they're going to go back. Whether they were Mardaget villages or Marduni or Askeran, uh, no one even imagined. So, so no, no one even thought of raising the white flag. But I'll tell you something. We haven't ris- risen the white flag today. Um, I haven't, and people around me, people uh, who think like me, and the Artsakhtis, every single Artsakhti I know, the dream of returning is still there. Dream of really re-liberating Artsakh is still there. And I know that as long as we keep that dream alive, we're going to go back. It's ours. It's been ours for 4,000 years. And I don't care what kind of regime there is in, our, in Azerbaijan um, and Turkey. It's not theirs. It's going to come back to us. And uh, and I'm not, this is not a romantic statement. The fact is that uh, we've gone through worse times in our nation's history. And uh, we're determined that... Um, we just, keep to, we just have to keep our, our kind alive, you know, the Artsakhti kind alive, and we will. We're going to do everything possible to do that uh, over, the, over the coming years. And uh, sooner or later, uh, the minute and the day we deserve to get back to Artsakh, we will go back to Artsakh. I believe that. You, you mentioned something before about, you know, the stronger win, whether it's political, whether it's military-wise, whether it's through lobbying. While the blockade was going on, and I'm sure you saw this as well, you know, a lot of people 
in the diaspora were protesting in front of governmental buildings, were blocking off freeways, were asking local politicians and even Congress and the Senate to speak up about what is really going on. Many mentioned that, you know what, the United States has our back and they'll continue to help us and they won't allow Armenia or Artsakh to perish. Truly in your heart, do you believe that the United States has Armenia's back? That's a loaded question. What does it mean to have our back? What, what, I mean, what, what does it really mean? I mean, are they going to come I, and support us when we uh, coming like having Ukraine having, or Israel? Is that- I mean, there was there was a nice check written to Ukraine. Well, multiple checks written to Ukraine. There was multiple checks written to Israel. Uh, I, I, you'd consider that having somebody's back, wouldn't you? No, I don't actually, because checks have been written over centuries, and that hasn't protected. In the, in, in the amounts that it's been written to countries recently? Yeah, I mean, look at what's happened in Ukraine after all these checks. And we don't even know where they're, what direction they're going and where they're going to end up. I mean, everything kind That's of withered out with, in the past couple of months because a lot of people were saying, oh, you know what, Ukraine is pushing and winning the war. But I don't even want to talk about Ukraine. I, I want to get your honest opinion. Do you believe that America is an ally then? But let's not even say it has our back. Well, there are no allies in politics, first of all. So you're asking a question that is uh, falls in the category of not applicable. Sorry. No, it's okay. My, you're asking me my my you know what I what my conviction is, and and my conviction is when it comes to politics, and I'm not a politician, never have been, and I'm pretty sure it would will never be. Well, we had Russian peacekeepers basically <laughs> help, supposedly keeping the peace, but we saw how that yeah how that ended yeah. But the, but the fact is, um, we don't haven't had any allies in in our region for a long time and had we had any allies the 2020 war wouldn't have happened i'm not saying the result of the war wouldn't have been what it was but the war itself wouldn't have started because wars start because um because politics don't solve problems and in the case of 2020 uh the politics didn't solve the situation but at the same time um the balance of power, military power, were so far off. I mean, it was like 10 to 1. So I'm surprised it didn't start in 2018. Uh, but these guys were getting ready for that war, and we were getting unready for the war. Well, yeah, the years. bone was thrown in 2016 during the Aprilian. It was kind of like a testing the waters. Yeah. So now you're going to say you're not a politician, but you're not giving me a, you're not giving me a, a direct answer. No, it's not about no, no, giving, no. giving me a direct you're answer. you a it's, question. no. I don't. Th- I don't believe the U.S. has been an ally of Armenia, and if if the if the word ally even applies here, because as I said, I don't think there are allies in politics. I think there are self uh, common interests in politics, and I don't believe that beyond uh, beyond harming Russia in the South Caucasus, there are no common interests interests between Armenia and the U.S. I mean, we, we really have nothing, not much to offer to the U.S., and that was the case for Georgia as well. So uh, we're getting into the p- politics, and, and I'm not really good at this, but that's my belief at least. And uh, I don't think we've had any allies. That includes Russia as well. Uh, the whole thing about strategic partnership and allies and all that, and, you know, fact is we, we knew this many years ago, but uh, it was proven again in 2020, and it was proven in 2016, and it was proven again a few months ago. I mean, the Russians do what the Russians believe is right for the Russians. So we're not even, you know, 
a dot in that in that equation. So uh, no, we don't have any allies, none. And um, the first thing we haven't realized for thirty two years now is is uh, if we want to have allies, so called allies, uh, we got to be our own ally first. And we haven't been our own ally. You know, we've been we've been fighting ourselves. We've been we've been looting ourselves for the past thirty two years. And we've been as a nation, we've allowed that to happen. You know, we've been quiet. We've been passive. We've been um, we've, we've justified just about every every everything that has gone wrong with our nation, with our country, uh, a million different ways, and, and we've never really sat down and said, "Why did we even liberate Artsakh? Was it just a romantic notion, or do we want to live on those lands? There are twelve thousand eight hundred square kilometers. What the hell? There's a hundred at best per government government figures, one hundred fifty thousand people living on the territories of Artsakh. The na- you know the national dream. You know we've, we've we spent thousands of lives and and billions and billions of dollars and and uh, it was a, it was a costly war the first war in Artsakh and it was a dream realized you know it was uh, for hundreds hundreds of years from the David Beck era, you know days so we finally were able to liberate our our uh, a critical part of our homeland the most the most beloved part of our homeland and we did nothing with it for for 30 years literally not only nothing but we actually just basically just rejected it for 30 years you mentioned earlier in the show something about respecting and loving your homeland in order to not lose it. Would you say that the governmental officials that have we've that Armenia has elected into power used all the funds that were coming in as a Ponzi scheme for themselves to get rich and sell off the land at this point? Fact is, we haven't elected anyone in, into, into power since 1991, and the first time any election took place after 1991 was in 2018. So, no, we we didn't elect any of those officials into power. They elected themselves into power, and when when the um, when people who are in power um, don't believe that they need the people, the population as their back, they'll do anything, and they did. Um, so. We weren't their back. We weren't, we as, as, you know, citizens of Armenia, we were not uh, important enough for them. And uh, they, we could, they knew we couldn't vote them out of office. They knew, they knew we couldn't do anything beyond maybe a few thousand people, on, you know, trying to organize the next revolution. And just about every year there was a failed attempt, failed attempt of a revolution. And uh, some were stronger than others. But the fact is every one of them failed for years and years. And uh, they all came in different uh, you know, masked under different uh, pretexts sometimes, you know, whether it was Electric Yerevan or, or uh, Malibu, you know, uh, 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 protests or, and then there was, you know, 2013 Rafi Hovhannisyan um, elections. I mean, he got elected president by, by all, you know, confirmed means or confirmed figures over 78, 80% of the population of Armenia, of the voters uh, of Armenia voted for him. He got elected, and they gave him 36%. So it was so easy to falsify elections in Armenia for years and years. So the elected uh, so-called you know, officials, uh, I wouldn't call them elected, obviously, but they were not even officials. They were thugs. And so they didn't give a damn about what we thought. I mean, they did, they did whatever was in their interests and the interests of people around them, their immediate uh, you know, surrounding, the people who br- brought them back into power every time and kept them in power. So there is no government. There is no uh, government institutions. Everything was a basically a, a Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme. It was a 
it was a false government system, you know. Uh, and 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 the fact is, we haven't been able to recover from all that because we haven't had a uh, a governmental institution for the year, 30 years and we hadn't had one for 70 years prior to that and not counting the two and a half years during the 19, uh, 18, 19, 20 independence, we haven't had one for 600 years. So we have lost touch with reality. We don't really know what it's like to govern ourselves properly. We really need to relearn all that, retool ourselves and uh, understand that uh, if we want to have, like I said, so-called allies, uh, we need to be our own ally first. Yeah, I mean, you go back to Armenian history, you look at it from being under Soviet rule, Ottoman rule, Russian Empire uh, ruling. It's kind of, you're absolutely right. We we don't know how to govern ourselves. And I've always said that the fate of Armenia was written, uh, written after the parliament shooting, when two of probably the main people that really did love Armenia were killed. I think that's when the fate of Armenia was written. But now that you know we're speaking, the fate of Armenia was written in '91, where the people that came into power were had no interest in Armenia at all. It was interest in themselves. When you say the fate of Armenia was written, I mean the fate of Armenia is in the hands of the people. It's just the people are well, very complacent. Well, it was in the hands of the people until you know. Two very, two, two very important individuals who loved our country, who fought for our country, were killed. Okay, that's two people that are no longer with us. How about the rest? Where's everybody else? So Not, well, the individuals that were probably standing behind those individuals were probably looking like, you know what, if we act up, we might be in the same place as they are. Okay, so, well, well let's, let's ask, you know, Viken and Edgar since... Vikan, you've, you've been living there now for how long? Has it been 15 or? 18 plus years. 18 plus years. And Edgar, you're on the verge. You're still remodeling. I'm halfway there, half a year still. So. <laughs> People tell me. As, as I always tell him, he, he, he visits Armenia every week for a week. So. <laughs> The people text me, they're like, are you here or are you there? I'm like, Which is why I took his, his quote serious when he was like saying, you know, Edgar's here for a week, on for a week. I, I literally thought you're flying out there. If, if there was, if the Concorde existed, the Concorde oh, the, aircraft, I'm sure you probably. He'd buy one. Yeah. He'd buy one. Yeah. Can you afford it? But, but my question is, what do you think of when, when he says about the faith? Because it's it's to live here and to assume, that's why I asked you about the mentality, the mindset of the Artsatsi people, because you know, I'm not trying to be a Monday night quarterback and look back and say, oh, if I was so-and-so, this is how I would have done it. But the way I see it is even, um, you know, we lost over 5,000 young men and, and women uh, during the uh, 2020 war. When we probably knew that was it was a lose-lose situation for us. Is it better to step back and say, you know what? And, and, I, and I'm sure the people would have re reacted differently and said, why are you stepping back? You know, we're duho, we're winning, blah, all that nonsense. But to, to sacrifice that many lives, a, a generation basically, knowing that we're going to lose versus just handing over what, what the war, whatever they're asking for at that moment, coming back, regrouping, 
and in a couple of years going back and taking back what you th- what is ours and same thing in this situation with with the Artsakh being taken from us now is instead of the 10 month starvation to walk away come back regroup because that's technically what we're doing anyways regardless now could we have done that with 5000 less martyrs and 120000 i mean a few hundred people did die during the blockade right and all those people without them having to starve i mean is is there a way to not repeat the same mistakes where we constantly we know we're going to lose yet we try to we think we're fighting a war or whatever the situation is a blockade and we walk away anyways as a as a loser and then think we're going to regroup and we never tend to go back because we just don't have enough either um, organization or um, the know-how or I don't know. You understand what I'm trying to say? I mean, is when, when <clears throat> it's kind of like knowing your opponent is going to kick your ass. You're not prepared because you haven't, you haven't been training. You're like, you know what? Let's push to fight six more months because I haven't been training the way I need to prepare for this fight. You, pr- you push to fight six months and you fight six months from now and you win. Whereas for us, it's like we've been eating and drinking. We know we're not prepared for the fight. We haven't trained. We haven't gone into fight camp. And yet we're like, okay, let's give it a try. Even though we're pretty sure we're not going to win this fight. But let's not push it because, you know, it's not going to look good for us to be like, you know what, we're not ready for this. Here's what you need. We're going to come back and take it back when it's our time. You know, the, uh, the famous Chinese, Chinese general said once, wars are fought before they start, fought and, fought and <clears throat> won before they start. And uh, this war, the 2020 war, was no different. It's a classic example of a war that was lost by us the minute it had started, the minute before it had started. Um, and we needed, to be, we needed to fight that war every morning waking up in Armenia, waking up anywhere in the world as a nation. We needed to fight that war in our hearts, minds, and in every way possible. We needed to get ready for that war because we knew it was coming. So the answer to your question is, yes, on paper, theoretically, we should have, and we, uh, you know, ideally we should have postponed everything by another month, another year, another 10 years, but uh, we had that time. It was given to us. As Monte once said, you know, we're, we're stupid, but there's something good about that. The Turks are even stupider than us. Monte said that 25 years ago. And uh, you remember those words and, and uh, you realize he was so right. But that was only temporary. They came to the realization that, no, 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 they got it. You know, they can go ahead and overrun us. If they, go, if they get organized, because they had all the resources, not just the numbers, but resources, uh, the financial might, and they could transform that financial might into military might and political might. When you got gas, you know, and half of Europe is buying that gas from you, um, you, can, you can basically tell them to shut up and sit down, and you can go ahead and kill not 5,000, but, you know, 500,000 people. Um, so it, it's, it's what happened in 2020. It's what happened in 2023. Um, and we did have that opportunity to postpone the war. 
and, uh, and to get ready for the next battle, but we didn't take it. So what's the lesson today? The lesson is the next war is coming. I'm saying this with all responsibility. It is coming. This isn't going to be a peaceful, uh, we're not starting a, a peace era. We're not. I do not believe, with, you know, to, in the bottom of my heart, it's not going to happen. Peace isn't, isn't coming to us. Another war is coming. An even bigger one is coming. And uh, the Turks have never really hidden their intentions for the past 32 years. They've said it over and over, and they're saying it today. <clears throat> they're calling our country Western, Western Azer, Azerbaijan. They're uh, literally saying that it's all, it's all theirs, and uh, Armenia is a fake country. I mean, they, all these things are on state TV in Azerbaijan. These aren't, these aren't school children being thought by some extremist you know, teachers. No, this is, this is state propaganda. This is, this is the state saying this from the president down. So um, the fact is that the next war is coming, and what are we doing about that today? That's what we should concentrate on. We can keep talking about the past, the immediate past. It's important to talk about the past because it's going to, it's the biggest, um, I guess it's the best way to realize what we've, what, where we have gone bad. And, uh, but if we're not going to learn from those mistakes, uh, it makes no sense to talk about the past. So yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's look at what we've done where our bad was, and um, what do we have to do today and tomorrow morning to be better Armenians? You know, it's not enough to love our country. There was not a lack of love for our country in 2020, and there, wasn't, there, wasn't, there isn't much lack of love today in Armenia. <clears throat> Most people, in their ways, to some degree, love Armenia, love their homeland. I, I'm not, I will never be the person to say that, you know, one person loves Armenia more than the other including myself. Never. Um, this isn't about loving. This is about uh, living the right way, being the right citizen, being the right Armenian, even if you're not a citizen. Because at the bottom of my heart, I believe that we're all citizens of Armenia, whether we have a passport or not. I believe that before I got my passport years ago, and, and I believe that today. Every single Armenian, every single soul on, on this earth who feels a part of this nation is a citizen of Armenia, and they have an obligation towards the homeland. And I said this last year, and I'm going to repeat myself. Armenia has to be, if we want to save our country, if we want to save our nation, if we want to be around another 4,000 years in the history of the world, we need to make Armenia the center of our gravity, the center of our world. Every single person, every single Armenian needs to basically think of Armenia every single day of his life. And everything has to be revolving around Armenia. How, how do you do that, though? I mean, how do we do that? Because to, to say every single day, you know, our lives have to revolve around Armenia, we have to think about Armenia. How, though? Well, you see Dave in the comments right now. He says, <clears throat> they're coming for our mainland. Well, you know, what should we do? Should we all move there? That's a good question. You know what? Um, I don't know, Dave, but moving to Armenia is not... Um, an act of patriotism. It really isn't. Because I know people who are 10 times more patriotic than I am, and they don't have the chance to move to Armenia. They don't have the opportunity. They don't have the means. So it's not about moving to Armenia physically. It's about moving to Armenia, period. Meaning that if we can be 
in Armenia mentally, spiritually, financially. We have resources. We're human beings. <coughs> we're doctors. We're engineers. We're, we're you know, woodworkers. We're, uh, we contribute to society in whatever country and whatever city we're, we live in. Um, so you guys are in Glendale. You're contributing to the society here. And we need to realize that, yes, physically, you know, in terms of taxes, in terms of, uh, you know, legal status, you're U.S. citizens and you got to do what you got to do in the U.S. But at the end of the day, you're not part of this nation. You know, you really, you cannot have two nations. The notion of having two homelands is, to me, false. It's a, it's a made-up idea. You only belong to one nation. And that nation is Armenia. And if you want to be part of Armenia, if you want to make Armenia your epicenter, then think of Armenia. Know what's going on in Armenia. Educate yourself every day. Spend time. You got to invest time. You got to know what's going on. You got to know who's who in Armenia. You got to know what's right for for Armenia. You know, uh, this isn't about donating a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars during any kind of telethon. No, it's 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 a lot more than that. And the biggest problem we have in the diaspora is ignorance because people don't spend, don't invest enough time to find out what's really going on in Armenia. And uh, it's hard. It's hard to dedicate a half hour a day to read the news, read various news, not just be, uh, you know, um, a one-sided, you know, politicized person, but really, truly dedicate the time and find out what's really going on, find out what the real needs are, connect with people in Armenia, whether it's your relatives or if you don't know anybody, if you're a, a, a typical classic Spirkahai, yeah, create your own connections in Armenia. Go to Armenia once a year. Um, don't make Armenia a tourist destination. Armenia is not a tourist destination, not for Armenians at least. Belgium is, France is, the most beautiful country in the world might be. And as beautiful as Armenia is, Armenia should never be a tourist destination for Armenians. Armenia should always be a pilgrimage for, Ar- for Armenians. And when we go to Armenia, we should we should... Find ways to connect in Armenia, to create people, to create a society for ourselves and to keep that going after we return from Armenia and basically, you know, create businesses in Armenia. Uh, give from ourselves. If we're a doctor, go volunteer in Armenia. You know, we got to raise Armenia up and there are many ways to do that. There are, the needs in Armenia are so immense. And for 30 years, the uh, potential the diaspora has had to assist Armenia. And I don't mean give money. No, no, no. That's not what I mean. But the the, uh, potential to help Armenia or to be part of the Armenian life, the prosperity of Armenia has been, has basically been, we've used like 5% of the potential of the the diaspora for the past 30 years. I don't know where we've been. Well, can I, can I say one thing? Uh, As of December 7th of 2023, and I want to ask you guys this question. That's four days ago. Yes. As of December 7th of 20, how many, Foreign tourists have visited Armenia this year. This year? Yes. I think it was 2.2. foreign tourists have visited Armenia. Million. Million, yeah. 2.2 million. If you do very, very basic math, if each one of them were to spend $10, how much money is that generating? 22 million. And that's being that's just me saying $10. That's it, there's a forty two percent surge compared to last year's twenty twenty two forty percent forty two percent more people have visited Armenia tourists than from last year to this year. Is it a mismanagement of money at this point then? Because again, like I said, I'm just saying ten dollars. 
Well, it could be 20 billion. It's not going to change anything. Because, see, in theory, what you're saying, I agree with you, Ken. But in practicality, like, how many people do I know, do you know, Edgar, all of us, where over the last 30 years, again, this is not to make excuses, that have gone there, attempted to open a, start a business, do something, and it's been completely taken away from them. I mean, yesterday I was um, having a cigar with a friend of mine, and I forgot what business it was, but his dad went there, they opened up a business. The moment everything was up and running, permits, you know, whatever, they step in and say, listen, this is no longer yours. How, how is anybody here? Because we have a ton of entrepreneurs in, in, in the diaspora, especially here in LA. They would love to go to Armenia, get a piece of the pie, make Armenia great, right? Um, even take what we've learned here over the last two, three, four decades, however long we've been here, this current generation, and establish something in Armenia. I personally cannot do that. I have a ton of knowledge. There's a ton of things I can do in Armenia. Why do I not do that? Because I'm afraid. I'm afraid if I go do anything there, it's going to be taken away. Well, we had the same issue, remember I mentioned, with our real estate brokerage. We wanted to implement the board, the associations, the contracts in Armenia, creating a MLS-type system in Armenia, creating a association-type system in Armenia where you know, certain agents will pay certain dues and that money will be allocated towards uh, creating contracts, creating rules, regulations. And uh, you know, it was very close to happening. But when certain people stepped in, they said, listen, if you guys are going to come back with those types of contracts, those types of rules, those types of regulations, it's better for you to not come back at all. It, it, it scares you from thinking, okay, should I invest my money into this? That's why a lot of people, when they, you know, in California, they look to say, okay, I want to invest in California. I want to invest in California. I would love to be that person to say, you know what? Let me go invest my money in the motherland, in Armenia. But at this point, uh, you know, I'm, I'm already, my foot is already, you know, out the door as far as investing in Armenia. I'm going to be investing outside of California in a different state because of fear. Uh, I want to say a couple of things on that. Uh, just the same thing I was thinking about escrow. This was about 10 years ago. Like there's no escrow system in Armenia. So if you want to buy a house, it's basically you go talk to this person, go to the Godaster, which is basically the recording office. recording office. Get like it's everything done by manual. Basically, you go, you meet, you go to a notary, you do yeah. all that stuff. So that's what about that's the, what we were trying to basically yeah, implement. I was thinking there. about the escrow system, and I kind of talked to a couple of people. I'm like, hey, we should the government should have the insurance system to back up back up the escrow, so we can have that system, so people don't get lied to. Because there was a lot of people talking about, oh, I go buy a house, but I don't know if the papers are right, correct, this and that. And it takes time. Believe me, it's the easiest thing is to reject, to say, oh, it's not going to happen. It's hard to happen. And and once you hear that negativity, you kind of back away from it and you come back to the American system because it's already established. But you're in real estate. Just in general, real estate history, in the last hundred years is where it became kind of like, and even in hundred years ago here, there was a lot of issues with real estate also. You know, like the history behind it, the contract changes. We have changes every day today here. Oh, we absolutely. Let me put it to you this way. the co Sorry for cutting you off. Yeah. 
contractually, see, I've been do, I've been doing it for fifteen years. Fifteen years ago, our residential purchase agreement yeah. was about eight pages. I know. Today, it's almost twenty pages. Yeah. And anytime something has changed, the board, the state board, gets together and they say X Y Z has changed. What are we doing? And we need to do it immediately to change the contract. Yeah. The 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 years or the months we had where cannabis was a very popular uh, business in California, we created cannabis laws. We created cannabis disclosures. Those are the things that help a country strive. And when you want to implement escrow, you want to implement title, you want to implement contract, and for somebody to turn around and say, "Listen, if you're going to come back with that, don't come back at all," it's it's kind of uh, a punch in the gut because you're trying to establish a system to help the country prosper but the country doesn't want to prosper but that's what i'm saying the the, the you're talking about now because it's an established system when you look at the in the 20s and the 30s we had the same issues here and in, in america about the real estate laws and about how we went about doing business if you read the history there was a lot of issues but it came to a part where it established because the obviously the people that had the money didn't they rejected those contracts and laws and once it was established and it was polished slowly it became to the system where we used to so in Armenia, when you go, it's kind of like it's you're starting from zero. So people that are already doing it their way, they want to reject that idea. So it's it's a it's kind of like you have to take step by step. And believe me, there's that's just one part of it. That's just a, you're talking about the real estate part, the escrow part. Everything in Armenia, you go, you bring up an idea. I'll tell you the simplest example, like a furniture guy building a kitchen cabinet. Like over a Zoom meeting or a FaceTime, I was telling him, telling my friend, why did he put the cabinet like this? And the guy, the the person who was making the camera was like, who is that guy? Does he even know what he's talking about? Because it's a rejection. You always want to say, hey, this is the way it's supposed to be like this. So when we get saying invest in Armenia, just your ideology, just you going there and telling them, oh, this is the way of system. For example, uh, yeah, I'm building my house there. Vigan has been to- told me from day one, he says, plumbing is the biggest issue. Simple plumbing. And I was like, and I always thought about air conditioning. So it's like central air conditioning is yeah. an issue. And he was right. For four or five months, I had so many plumbers come, and no, everybody knows the best way. Even though there's codes and rules and laws, but no, everybody came. People referred me people from, oh, this person built real mall, this, that. But they came to simple stuff there, you know. But now I finally found somebody, nice guys, and they didn't know a lot either, but they were open to to. Listen to the idea. See, that, that's the go, that's going backwards, though. Yeah, but but see, that issue we have here. Have you have you ever had a single contractor come to your house and compliment the previous uh, craftsman's shops, work? Yeah. No, that's everybody the, that's, walks in. What the hell did he do with this cabinet? <laughs> what the hell? How did he install this toilet? How the hell did he do this pool? Like, really? So nobody does it right? No, that's and, the. I I get your point there. I get your point there. But the the system, as far as being able to establish certain rules, and and Ivan said it, Dave said it as well in the comments. He says uh, rule of law. There is no rule of law in Armenia. And that's that's the thing. When you say you have to, you can't reject it, right? For example, me again. I'm talking for myself. I personally, if I move to Armenia today, I will live such a comfortable life in Armenia. I mean. I can run my business from there. I could live in any, any city I want, any type of house. I can drive any car, I, which I can't do here in the States. But I can do that in Armenia if I move there today. 
And so that would be selfish decision technically for me because it would be the easiest thing for me to do. Forget about the social aspect of it as far as family and community that I have here because I don't have any family in Armenia. I don't have friends. I don't have family in Armenia, really. Uh, very yeah, you do. Huh? Yeah, you do. Well, <laughs> 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 and that comes back to what I was talking about earlier, so, but, about networking. But my and, and networking is, it's not about, look, networking I can, I'll make 2,000 friends he's a, tomorrow. He's, a, he's not, a guru when it comes that's to not, that. My, my point is, do I, the, the selfish thing for me to do for myself would be to move there because I I could pretty much it would be like I, I'm retired. But for my kids, is that am I not giving them the opportunity to to grow up here, which is all the struggles I had to face with to get to where I'm at today? That's the first one of the things I think about. And second is when you sound you know we're rejecting. It's not about reject rejecting anything. It's because so many before us that all of us know. I mean, in the, even in the comment section, there's several people saying it. How many people they know that went there, attempted to start a business, and it was taken away from them? If I know 20, 30 people who've done that, and they're as smart, if not smarter than me, how would I take that risk and say, you know what, I'm, I'm actually going to go there and risk everything as well, everything I've built for, just to see if I can try to implement the system that I know the people are going to reject, because even a simple thing, like when I was there last year, we were at a restaurant. I tell the guy, I said, listen, you got a $3,000 steak grill over there. You've got the beautiful wood fire burning. Why don't you put the meat on there? Why are you putting it in an oven? It's not a cake. He says, yes, get them. I know what I'm doing. Okay. He knows what he's doing. Great. Bartender, he makes a drink. I say, you know, it, 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 it tastes better if you mix the ice first and then you pour it in the glass, you know? Chop it. You know we have a world champion bartender. Barista or bartender? It's like those things prevent somebody like me going there because if I'm going there to to try to bring our ways from here, what we've learned, just like if we move to, oh, you know, Idaho or Ohio or you know Wherever. South Dakota, anywhere, we're probably twenty, thirty years ahead here in LA. We could take our know-how and do what we did here in 20 years in a matter of five years over there. But but are they are, are our own people, our own country, our motherland going to be receptive and not rip us off? Because if, if they were inviting, I promise you, tens of billions of dollars would be invested into Armenia by the diaspora. There's nothing more. I haven't spoken to one single business owner all these years as in, a, in my adult life that not one person has said, if there was an opportunity, would you invest? Yes, as long as it's safe. That's always the first thing that comes up. Yes, as long as it's safe. But uh, a couple of things. Uh, first thing, like you're saying, they rejected the bartender. This, that. I just bought the plumbing example, right? So now I got these people that they, they did it. They're like, this is a lot different, a lot of work, a lot more work. But they understand that that's the right way. That's the correct way. So now I told them, I said, next job you do, now you know what you're supposed to do. So that's a teaching point from them to start. So that, that's your small influence. You go in there and do it. There's a lot of rejections. You're going to get rejections a lot, lot of places, believe me. No is the easiest thing to say. No is, is the easiest thing to say and say, okay, it's not going to happen and let's move on. But it's just a few, 
just like Vegan said, so if you want to in- invest in it, it's not just putting the money into it. It's also taking the time to, it's an education process. And it comes, I always go back and I said, we have to educate our youth because trying to educate a 40-year-old man to change something is going to be way harder. You're going to waste a lot of energy. Out of 100 people, maybe you'll change one or two. You got to start and educate the youth. And that starts with, with the youth seeing things. And as diasporans, when we go there, we, we show things, they see it. Like when I, go to, when I go to my school, every time I go, I go to my school. And I did the library there a couple of years ago. Now I want to do the, the hall there. But small things that I do there, it makes a difference for the kids that they come there. Now I go, I see them sitting there reading. I have those puffy chairs. They sit there, they read. That's a small change. But that change is influencing the youth. And that's how you make that change happen. Second thing is, a lot of, I know in the diaspora, we always talk about the negative things. Oh, they went and did a business. They, got, they were taken away from this. But there's a lot of positive things too. There's a lot of businesses. Why go? I see uh, people from uh, Iran, Parskahanede, they, they all came uh, from Lebanon, from Syria, different places. They open businesses and they're doing good. So we never talk about the good stuff. Negativity is always easier to explain. Same thing, you go to Yelp review. It's always the negative reviews more than the positive reviews. So the positive things we don't talk about. It's always a negativity. And I, I, for me, it's like, yeah, there's bad things. Believe me, I, I go there almost every other month, every two months I'm there. There's a lot of bad things. I've been involved in a lot of things and there's a lot of negativity. It pisses me off sometimes. But I cannot let that negativity determine the, the, the positive influence I'm trying to do or the, something that I want to do positively over there. So as I say, the negative talk, let's just keep it to the small because we all know it's there. Let's talk about the positive things and what we can do to make the positive change in there. And it's hard. Believe me, it's not easy. Sometimes you get tired. Sometimes you get frustrated. Sometimes you see people, you're like, really? Like, I have to deal with this? But it is what it is. And why? Because we were kind of compounding that Soviet era for, what, 70 years? So we still have, a lot of the people still have that mentality. So it's hard to get, get them away from that because that's the system that they were in. That's the blockade that they have. And that's the, that's the rejection. No, you can't do this. No, that's going to happen because of that, that Soviet era blockade that we have. So it's the diasporans when we go there because we've seen things. And even people in Armenia that go out and visit countries, come back, they start thinking differently because they see things and they want to change things differently. So that's why when it says the diasporans need to invest, it's not just the money that we need to invest. It's just even our, just our presence there just to say, hey, this water bottle, you know, it's good. Or if you do it this way, it's better. Maybe 10 will reject it. One, one will accept it. So it's a small, it, and, it, and another thing in Armenian thing is like, we want things to happen over one year, two years. Change usually takes about 20 to 30 years for something to change in a community, in a country. And in, in, in our culture, we're like, we start something and within like four or five months, if you don't see results, uh, this is, is not good. Let's do something. And that's the Armenian way of... That, but that's, see, that's, that's do, we, do we have the real. time though? We need to make the time. We have the time. Well, is time on our side? Time is never on our side, especially with the geolocation where we are. But see, my concern we cannot is, make that as an excuse and not say, well, oh, we don't have the time. Let's not do it. 30 years was wasted. Yeah, I know. 30 years that we can, you know, never get back. So that's, that's my concern is, do we have enough time to, you know, as you mentioned, to kind of regroup and understand that, all right, you know what? Our enemy is preparing for war again. What are we doing? You look at a lot of these videos people are posting on social media, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Because you see people in Yerevan, in Armenia, you know, having a fantastic time, spending money, contributing to the economy there, having a great time themselves, visiting the motherland. 
but at the same time you you kind of in the back of your mind think okay what are they doing on a political scale as far as preparing for war because it's in the back of everybody's mind everybody knows they're preparing the enemy is always preparing they're they're warmongers at the end of the day they starved women children and babies for 10 months without even worrying about it you there was interviews with aliyev where they said they asked him you know what will you do when nagorno karabakh is taken uh from armenians he says we'll we'll, we'll live in peace together bullshit you're not going to live in peace with anybody you don't even know what the definition of peace means so my concern is do we have enough time you know time is an accelerator if you look back at history um time has always gone faster every day in other words uh what the the, the uh, succession of events in a, any 10 year period 100 years ago was a lot slower than what it is today and if i can explain myself um basically it's there's always less time and we don't know what's ahead of us in the next year 10 years 20 years but um we've got a lot of potential as a nation and as i was saying earlier i don't think we've tapped into that potential for the most part and uh, we're all guilty of that but the the biggest guilt comes down to the governments of armenia and uh we've never thought strategically we've never really um you know we all we all have limited resources as a nation we have limited resources as ngos we have limited resources as individuals we have limited resources we can't you know as you said you can invest in a business in armenia but if that doesn't work out you might or might not want to or you might you might or might not be able to invest in a second business in armenia so you want to do it right the first time um it's it's uh, it's all about strategy and we've never really i mean I, i look back at the things we've done the decisions we've made some of the largest political or non-political ngos or organizations in the diaspora and the governments of armenia what they've done and i I'm amazed by the fact that 90% of what's been accomplished hasn't been implemented or thought of strategically. And uh we got to think strategic. We got to think what's what's critical for Armenia, both in terms of uh infrastructure, in terms of defense, in terms of uh geography. You know, what's what geography is is, is more vulnerable than other geographies. And Artsakh was the most vulnerable area of Armenia, and we didn't really deal with it that way um uh, some of the strongest uh you know uh defense lines were not in Artsakh for 30 years we just kept our soldiers in open trenches you know um and we just you know mines from the 1970s uh, so my, what i'm saying is we got to start thinking strategically and we can't think of Artsakh i mean Armenia in general we can't think of it as a country where we we're going to make an investment if we think that way then you're right because yeah it's uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to invest in Armenia in many sectors of Armenia's economy it's it's probably going to make more sense to invest in Utah okay no no when i and say invest it, it's not about it's not about return on investment it's about not losing everything Protection. everything Safety. you worked for if For example, and again, I'm sure a lot of people would agree with me. Let's say if I knew 
I invested X amount of dollars in a, to start a business in Armenia. I didn't make, I made zero dollars from it. But I had 50 people who worked, let's say, at my facility, whatever, office setting. 50 people that made a living, supported their family. And I just didn't get that taken away from me. Where eventually maybe I could pass on to somebody else. Somebody else can come in and whatever is 50, 100, half a million, whatever is invested. Here, you know, buy this business. Now you can make profit for yourself if you want. It's not even about the profit. It's about not losing because you're doing it for, you know, to, for the right reason, which is I want to invest to help that country out and then to also bring in an idea, to, to bring in resources. Just don't sweep it from underneath me. I don't need to make a return on the investment. It's not about that. It's just don't, you know, <laughs> I know what you're saying. <laughs> well, that that that's that's the he doesn't want to use the f word. <laughs> not not on tonight. Just screw me over. Well, the fact is that a lot has changed in the past five years, and I'm not I'm not making a political statement at all. Anyone who says that it's the same as it was before uh, is either an ignorant or someone who's making a political statement. A lot has changed, and I don't think there's a state top-down organized um, system of doing exactly what you're saying. Uh, that was the case for 25 years where the state from the president down and their thugs were basically um, after investments from the, from the outside, whether it was an investor from an Armenian from the U.S. or a German from Germany. And the examples are many, as you said. But that is not the case anymore. Not to say that Armenia is as safe of an investment as Utah is. And I'm only bringing Utah as an example. But um, we, then again, um, we're not, um, we cannot think of Armenia in that sense. And again, I'm not, I don't want someone to say, well, investments are investments. Business investments cannot be a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're right. It, it shouldn't be a self-fulfilling prophecy, prophecy. And investments should make sense. And I think today, more than ever, if you look back in the past 30 years, in the past few years, uh, investments, and, and I'm not a business expert per se or a financial expert, but I have seen more success stories in the past few years than I've ever seen in, in you know, 25 years in Armenia. And uh, I think the climate is right. I think there are many, many ripe sectors where uh, things are really ripe for a good, smart investor to come in and and, uh, and basically uh, create jobs and uh, create opportunities and, and uh, create financial might. And I think it's there. I think we just need to grab it. And and uh, it is, a lot of it is about networking. So uh, it takes more guts to come, to travel 10,000 kilometers away and, and uh, invest in a country where you don't know anyone. Uh, and that's the case with many diasporans. Uh, or, you know, some people, but you don't really have any confidence uh, that you're, they're going to protect you or you, you don't know who the manager is going to be on, in your business and you don't know how to even hire, what the hiring methodology or thinking is. And it's tough because it's a whole different, you know, mindset. Um, but it takes will. And yes, it takes patriotism. It, it, does, ta it does take a certain level of sacrifice and commitment uh, to, to make that 
take that leap and make that investment. But I think the rewards can be just as good, if not better, than anywhere in the U.S. But you can't think of it uh, the same way you think of an investment in the U.S. or in Europe. You can't because uh, Armenia is different. And first and foremost, it's our it's our homeland. So um, that's not to say that it's not a good investment environment today. It is. And I don't know if I could say this, if I could have said this five years ago. I couldn't. It was a horrible environment for investments five, ten years ago. Uh, the chance of failure was so high. You had to be a thug, basically, or, to, or a friend with a thug uh, yeah. to, to be able to raise your chances. But that's not necessarily the Which case Which is today. still most of our perspective, believe it or not. I think it's, you know, I'm here to say that it's not the case anymore. (laughs) It's not the case anymore. It's, you still have problems with skilled labor. You still have problems with government regulations. Uh, We have a lot of problems. Uh, We have the same problems here too. It's not to say, I guess maybe here we understand how to maneuver the system, but here, especially in California, it's tough a state to start a business and to maintain a business. This state is completely against business owners, completely against employers, I mean, if they could shut us all down tomorrow and still tax us, they probably would. That's that's what I believe. That's how much faith and confidence I have in the state of California. In other words, that's how stupid they are. <laughs> exactly. It's union-driven, basically. It's a big, yeah, it's a bigger mob than... Just keep the tax the, revenue, yeah, but no, not the business. Yeah, it's a bigger mob than the uh, thugs in Armenia. I mean, we have the fifth largest economy in the world, which means, you know... They just do it legally. Exactly. It's a it's system. A, yeah, it's a system in place. And we're okay with the system because we were, some of us were born into the system. Some of us were, grew up into the system and we're accustomed to it. And we accept it. We embrace it, you know, and it's part of life. Uh, but I, I think it's it also has to do with, you know, as, as PBD says, he was, Born in Iran, made in America. We were born in Armenia, made in America, because America has given us what we have today. And when when the IRS screws you over, you're like, okay, fine. You know, when at least there has Medicare benefits, at least there's Social Security, at least there's a couple of things. Some of the roads are being built. But when your own Armenia screws you over, it's like, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help. Yeah. Don't. <laughs> there you go. You, that, just, you just put your finger on the wound. We're a lot less tolerant in Armenia. We are. Towards Armenia. Of towards course. Towards Armenians in Armenia. Towards the government of Armenia. Yes. I don't expect, I don't want to be screwed in Armenia. In someone else's country. Here, Why? I'm okay being screwed. If I go to China, dude, they're going to rape me. In Armenia, I don't, the moment you hear me speak Armenian, the thought of, oh, I'm going to screw this guy because he's from the diaspora. That should just go away. No, he's one. He's one of us. I'm gonna take care of this guy in a way where he's gonna go talk to everybody at the diaspora about us, so he can bring ten more people with him. That's how I see it. Because I'm a recruiter. He's a recruiter. You guys, we're all recruiters, whether we know it or not. And the only way I can recruit is if I go there and I'm I'm and I'm accepted. They don't look at me as, oh, look at this fool. He's from, even the guy I rented the apartment from in Yerevan, I told the guy, I said, listen, bro, don't treat me like a fool just because I'm from the U.S. Like, you know, if this is, I'm asking you to fix this, just fix the damn thing. I'm paying you Beverly Hills prices. 
at least pick up the phone call when I call you. Don't look at me as some idiot from the U.S. You know, like, don't treat us that way. Because when I go back to the U.S., the next 20 guys that come, I could either say, go rent from VCAN, or I will say, whatever you do, don't do, go to don't, VCAN. Do not rent from this freaking moron. That's, that's the thing that pisses me off is that's the experience I had was I'm like, listen, bro, the, the dryer doesn't work. I'm here with my mom, my wife, my kids. We need this damn thing to work. Okay, and your, your grandma's going to do my laundry for the next week. I'm paying you five grand to stay here. The least you can do is make sure my laundry's work. You know, it's not to sound, you know, entitled or it's a basic little thing that I was trying to explain to him. And then the way he came across to me, I had to, there was a point where seriously things got heated because I told the guy, I said, listen, you better fix this damn thing. Otherwise you're going to have to pay me everything I paid you back. I said, don't, you know, this is. And hold on. How are, how are you expecting to get all that back? Uxdale. Well, we, we would, are we you see this is the conversation we, networks in, <laughs> yeah you see see that's see this is the, but but i shouldn't have that combo. i understand that but see you approaching that individual saying listen fix this or i'm gonna get everything back initially i didn't do that no no, no i, I, I did understand. after the 10th time no i, I get he, it no no no, i get it but he, you intending to possibly potentially get whatever you paid him back mm-hmm. was going to be impossible maybe can we can we agree on something, all of us? Depends. We can't. We're feel, Armenian. Feel free. Uh, you're right. <laughs> I, I forgot that for a second. But we do really have, and even I'm guilty of that. After all these years, we do really have immensely higher expectations and a lower tolerance level in Armenia towards Armenia than we have anywhere else in the world. And if we admit that to ourselves, and and we understand, I understand why why that's the case. And I was born and raised in the diaspora. And I, to me, everything Armenian was beautiful and, and green and pink and whatever you want to call it. And nothing could be, could be wrong with an Armenian. Armenians didn't cuss, didn't fight, didn't, mm-hmm. didn't uh, do anything wrong, didn't steal. Fact is, they did all these things and more. And we have to understand it's a country. And there are problems in Armenia. There are problems here. And we can't, we can't idealize and and then raise our expectations to a level where no one ever can meet. Fact is, there are different standards of customer service. There are different standards of, you know, uh, you know, when I, when we first moved to Armenia, I would get up in the morning and and my neighbors in the building, my neighbors living in the next building to us, we would get up in the morning and I would say good morning to everybody, people I didn't know, it's just people I knew they were the neighbor. I'd see the guy every day, and. I realized that then, then I th- first thought, first thought, <laughs> they this guy's so rude. God, I see him every morning. I've seen him, you know, three times a week, every morning. And, and uh, <laughs> it's like coming to is, America, this is, this is the 10th time I tell, I say good morning to him. He doesn't respond to me. He just looks at me with a stone face and doesn't even respond to me. I said, how rude could this be? All these talks about, you know, Armenians being so nice and so social and that's bullshit. Yeah. Have that's you seen true. the movie Coming to but, America? Let me just finish. Let me just finish. But then I realized, it took me a while to realize that that's, just a, that's only a gesture in, in the U.S. That's not really a gesture of goodwill. It's just a gesture. People say good morning for other reasons, mostly because they're 
it's the thing to say, or maybe even they're scared of you or something. They just want to get rid of you. Or so then I realized that that guy's not saying good morning to me. Didn't mean anything. Didn't, didn't, uh, didn't really, I can't really judge him by that. He, and then he turned out to be the nicest guy in the world as soon as we got to know each other. So the fact that he doesn't say good morning, um, by us standards, which everyone says good morning to everybody here, um, strangers doesn't really mean anything. And if I start judging that person or people like him because he doesn't say good morning, because I expected him to say good morning, then, um, then, then it's not, it, it's not, um, I, I shouldn't be the judge of that. That's different. Because we all come from You know why backgrounds. that's different? Because, because that guy's a neighbor. When I rent something from you, for example, when we go to Cancun, when we go to Jamaica, wherever we travel to, right, all of us, the moment you walk into that resort, they greet you like you're a king because you're spending money to go stay there. You, you have choice to stay somewhere else. But you chose that specific resort, and they're going to make sure you come back. And when you come back, you tell five other friends to go back to the same resort. Or you're talking now, about just entering the resort? Imagine even during, you walk in for dinner, you walk in for lunch, you walk into what, the lobby, you walk into the pool. Now, those, those, those things were actually fantastic. Surprising. Remember when, even when I came back, you guys were like, how was the service? Some people were, comp- I'm like, service-wise, fantastic. Can I cut you off right sure. there? 2002 was the first time I went back to Armenia. 2002, 2003, 2002. At the time, even in Yerland, the small center, what they call the circle, basically. You go there, you sit in outside the restaurant, rude. Everything was rude. I used to be like, what the hell is wrong with these people? Why are they like this? But it changed. Now you're saying you went last year, right? Right. A lot of things changed as far as service. But there are still a lot of things that need to be changed. One, the simplest example I always bring to my friends, our expectations of Armenia, and I, I feel it, believe me, I go there too and I get pissed off too. We always want it to be better because it's ours. It's our homeland. It's, our, it's, our, it's ours. So when something is negative, we get pissed off about it. Simplest, simplest thing I want to tell you. When we land here in the U.S., we get... Passport control is the first thing, right? We mm-hmm. go there, we give our passport. We more or less everybody shits in their pants because in case they ask a question, we say the wrong word. Oh, well, shit. Yeah. Look, unlike you, I don't bring drugs, so I don't. <laughs> shit my I don't I'm just saying, maybe we brought some seed <laughs> on or something, some fruits or something, uh, or some cognac from Miami or the vodka that you bring. But anyhow, <laughs> see, so uh, they ask you a question, you answer every question properly, and they say, "Okay, welcome to America." You're like, "Oh shit, good, I'm done, I'm up." You go to Armenia, you went in that same line, passport line. And most of the people there are Armenian custom yeah. agents, right? You go there, they open your passport. God forbid they spent about 10, 15 seconds extra going through the paper. You know what happens to the, yeah. the people? What interesting, they start arguing right away. Yeah. Because now that, it's mine that now. I, yeah, that's so true. our expectations is like, once we step our foot in Armenia, we want to be like, higher higher grounds than everybody else. So first thing, custom agent takes 15 seconds extra to, I'm always nice. I think under my name, there's another person that's, that didn't serve in the military. So every time I go there, it's a similar name. They're like, what's your father's name? I'm like, well, I was going to be sure example. I don't have to say it. But I go, okay, go. Even though I have, in my passport, I was like 100 stamps of army entering income. Every time they ask me that question. There are people that might argue that. Like, well, why? Like, because it's an army. But here in the States, you land, Everything you probably will answer every question they ask, and you want to say a word. Yeah. And just like you were saying earlier, like, yeah, in, in California we get screwed, businesses this that, but in Armenia when we get screwed, it's a different because it's it's deep down in, in, into our hearts. We feel bad about it. 
but it's it's our attitude when we go there too. When we go there right away, we want to be like, oh, you know, like oh, I'll tell Look, you, I, I from agree. From the airport, starting from the airport, airport. I agree with you. Yeah. But as far as for me, I'm not like that. I don't have that's the good expectations. Thing. That whole uh, security thing, airport. It's your job. I respect what you do. It doesn't matter. I'm in Armenia, Mexico, Europe. Doesn't matter. Yeah. It's the, the, that whole landlord tenant thing was different because it's a, you know, I'm staying at your home. This is my home for three weeks. It's a different situation than, um, than the, 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 but, uh, was, but you, you're paying him, but you paid it. It's not free. If it was free, you'd be like, okay, you know what? Yeah. Shut up and just sit there. See, there, there's, a, there's a saying that they say about Armenians. They say, the worst person you could meet is an Armenian. But the best person you could it's meet an is an Armenian. And they're both the same person. So it's it, we're, we are a double-edged sword, unfortunately. Uh, it's just a matter of you know, uh, adapting to certain cultures. Like, for example, us, if we were a Californian was to go to New York, we wouldn't be able to adapt to New York right away because the New York mentality is chop, chop, quick, 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 quick. And But if we were to go to the South, for example, if we were to go to Georgia, Slow. we would adapt right away because it's more of a Southern hospitality. Now, if a person from Georgia were to go to New York, it would be, again, go worlds apart from each other. What we expect is, as an Armenian going to Armenia, seeing our own is mutual respect, mutual courtesy, and trust amongst each other. When the trust is broken, it's unfortunate. It's, it leaves a very deep wound in our in our hearts. Because it's yeah. our that, that TSA yeah. situation, you know what would piss me off? If I land, and they would do the same thing here, anywhere. If I landed there and you think, oh, this guy's from Los Angeles, you know, let's see if we can take Some money 20 feet. Of course, tell them how many suitcases that's you had. Piss me off. Tell them how many suitcases you had. <laughs> yeah, even if they took twenty bucks a suitcase, that that paid the rent for a year. There you go. So that, of course, would piss. Regardless of where I'm, I, I had situations at at the. Uh, I've had you know different airports, France and this and that. Where France is the worst. Yeah, they have ten windows open. Uh, only two are working, and no. out of the two, one is on lunch break. Like that's a. Uh, France different. is the worst, Belgium, France. But, but yeah, but I'm not saying when you go to Armenia, just not. I'm not saying you, I, me, or I, the majority see, of it. They go there, they feel like they're like everybody's inferior to them. Now they can yell. Now they can demand. No, no, no. That it's, it is. I think it should I'm be there, the other way. And around. I see it in the line. I'm like, I, I'm just I see it too, and yeah. it should be the other way around. Even I, there's people here who you know they they, they flick at the waiters like, yeah, like come on, bro. Like just, cause just because you're paying for dinner doesn't mean you get to snap out. Relax. You're an employee of some other company, just like that waiter yeah. is an employee of this restaurant. So my thing is, if they did a better job at recruiting, this conversation would be different. And and, and you're right. It has improved. I mean, I don't, I've last time I went back was decades ago, but the, the service, everything has improved tremendously. And even the police... The law for all of those things, I saw a huge, huge improvement. But see, all of that takes time for people to actually listen to it, buy into it, and eventually, oh, you know what? Let me try something out. Let me try this. Oh, wow, I didn't get screwed over. Maybe we can do a little bit more there. And that that's what it's going to take is if 5, 10, 20, 50, 100 people go there 
start a business and come back with positive uh, stories, positive experiences, that hundred is going to be tenfold and then a hundredfold eventually. That That's how I think it's going to, it's going to grow. You know, everything we talked about the last 10 minutes reinforces what I said earlier, which is we need to be a accepting Armenia the way it is and be fighting for what's not right in Armenia at the same time, which is what I've done all these years is you can't, we can't be negative for the sake of being negative. We can't be negative because it's a matter of principle. We can do that if we were to be a tourist in you know, Vietnam and never go back to Vietnam again because it's not a good place to visit. But Armenia is not a place to visit. Armenia is our homeland. And it's, um, it's basically, it is what it is because of our uh, you know, national history of the last six, 700 years. It has become what it has become uh, because we didn't take care of it, because we didn't take care of our independence, our kingdoms and other nations have, we didn't. So the bottom line is we can't hold anyone responsible in Armenia for what they do and what they say individually. Because you know what? Had I been born in Armavir and raised in Armavir, I don't know who I would have been, but I wouldn't have been the same person. Uh, and maybe I would have been one of those people you would have thought of, you know, I would have been the person who would have rented you the place and not taken care of the uh, washing machine. The, the bottom line is, um, because I wouldn't have had a good understanding of what customer service should be. Um, the bottom line is, we first and foremost need to accept it the way it is because it's, in our, it's, our, it's our homeland. And second, we need to fight for everything that's wrong in Armenia. We have a duty to fight for everything that's wrong in Armenia. It's not about, um, it'd, be nice, it'd be nice to do uh, you know, to make an investment in Armenia or to help someone in Armenia or to fund an NGO or no, it's more than that. It's, it's about our national duty. If we do consider ourselves Armenians, it goes back to what I said earlier, Armenia needs to be the, the epicenter of our world and our individual worlds. And how do we do that? Not necessarily by moving to Armenia, but by accepting it the way it is and fighting for everything that's wrong. And everyone has their way of fighting. If you're a doctor, go, go volunteer in Armenia two weeks a year. If you're an engineer, go teach in Armenia for two weeks a year. Um, if you're an ex-military, go, go train our soldiers. Everyone, if you're a real estate agent, you're an expert in that field. If you're a finance person, uh, do what you do best and do it for Armenia, even if it's for a few weeks, a few days a, a year. And we have a lot to give to Armenia, and uh, we haven't really done that. I mean, it's, there's been you know, stories of that over the past 30 years, but... We have never really done it as a nation. We have never really done it systematically. And we have a melting diaspora. You know, it's, it's, it's going away. It's, we're not going to have this diaspora 50 years from now. You and I or our grandkids are not going to sit here and talk about Armenia. They're not going to care about Armenia as much, as much as you and I do. And the bottom line is we want to give as much as we can to Armenia while we last. And um, if, we, if we look at it that way, uh, then everything will be different. Then all of a sudden, um, everything will look beautiful because that's, that's the way it is and it always has been for me in Armenia. Yes, I've had my, my bad moments, uh, my frustrated moments. God knows I have. But um, I've always found, found a way to go home at the end of the day in Armenia and say, God, I love being here. God, I love these people. Every time and, I, I talk to Vic, it's like, oh, 
ready to pack up. <laughs> no, seriously. Some, see, I'm not being a romantic. I know, I'm, I'm, I know, but you're... Otherwise, I wouldn't have lived there all these years. I would have left. Of course, you're, you're, you're practicing what you're preaching. I mean, so uh, it's... I'm not... I think Ed's buying his tickets right now. <laughs> yeah, Ed's on experience. <laughs> no, I, so, I, I'm complimenting you. That's... See the way the way you speak of it it's so it's so encouraging and so it's like you just you're you're like uh what was his name uh William Wallace of Armenia you know remember Braveheart I'm not William Wallace but I love my country <laughs> Okay we'll call you weekend vegan Wallace <laughs> I got I'll tell you a story about tolerance about about realism when it comes to our homeland in 2001, September 2001, we're sitting in, our, in, in Yerevan, downtown Yerevan, some friends of ours, five, six of us. And one of them, a French-Armenian, was late. We, we had a, a meeting put together, and uh, it was to start a new organization uh, called Yergir Union, actually, to repatriate the uh, liberated territories of Artsakh. So this was one of those meetings, and, and uh, he was late, like 30 minutes late. Finally, he got to the cafe. We were sitting at and we said where, where were you he goes i gotta tell i got a story to tell you guys he goes <laughs> so he said well what happened he goes well i was i was walking and uh he was by the circus and and there is a kind of a a, a square there and he said well there were there's a commotion going on and people were fighting and yelling at each other and so i stepped into it and there was like two guys and and others were encouraging him and there were and it turned into a fist fight and they were basically killing each other in the middle of the street. And uh, so I, I got involved in it. I tried to, you know, take them apart from each other. And, uh, and I told them, look, guys, it's, it's, it's immoral. It's not right. You guys are both Armenians. You, don't, you shouldn't be fighting each other. And, and I said, well, what happened? Did they stop fighting? He goes, no, they didn't. So, so you were not successful? He goes, well, what happened was this, this old guy, you know, in his 80s or something, he approached me and, and said, son, could I ask you something? And I said, well, and I told him, yeah, sure. He, he goes, where are you from? And I told him I'm from Paris. He goes, well, don't the French fight on the streets? Don't they cuss at each other and fight once in a while on the street? On the street? And I, he goes, I realize that this isn't, this isn't an ideology. It's not an ideology. It's a country. And it comes with the good and the bad. And uh, we don't accept that as diasporans. And I'm a professional I used to be a professional diasporan. I used to think that everything has to be. Otherwise, I'm not going to accept it. Everything has to be, you know, ideal. And uh, but if we want to get closer to the ideal, we can. We just need to work at it, and it's our job to work at it. Not the Germans and the French and the Americans and the Russians. And no, it's our job, and we've done a lousy job at it. But let's let's change things. Let's start working on making things better in Armenia. Let's, let's start working on having a better customer service. Let's make Armenia the best customer service country in the world. And you know what? Yes, we've had, we've made some incredible progress when it comes to customer service in Armenia. We're talking about that specifically, but that's not the point. The point is our country needs us, needs every bit of us, needs every inch of us, needs every breathe of us, breath of us. And we need to, we need to breathe Armenia. We need to, we need to basically be there without being there physically. And we can, there's ways to do that. And, uh, but it takes time. It takes sacrifice. I know that, you know, I have family here and 
uh, my parents, my sister, and I have a lot of friends here. And uh, I know people are busy. I've lived here for 20 years, so I know what it's like to live in the U.S. And I know it's hard to, to be informed about what's going on in Armenia. I know it's hard to be in touch with Armenia. I know that. I'm not, I'm not coming from Armavir. I wasn't born there. And for someone like me to say this, I think I should be believable because the longest part of my life I've lived in the U.S. So I, I think I know what I'm talking about. I know it's hard to, to do what I'm saying. It takes a lot. It takes a sacrifice. It takes time away from other things that we love. You, you know, you, you, maybe you shouldn't do kayaking or you shouldn't go up to the mountains or you shouldn't do fishing. You should just dedicate the time you want to, even if, even if fishing is your favorite hobby, which you know what? It is my favorite hobby. And I love doing it for years and years. And I haven't done fishing for years now. Although I can probably go fish in a lake in Armenia, but it's not yeah. the same. And I don't have the time. I sacrifice that to other things that I do in Armenia. So we don't get to do everything we want to do and then be part of the Armenian nation. We can't. I, I have you know? a suggestion for Vikan. Take seriously consider this. If you had a 15-minute segment once a week, just go on YouTube, your own channel. I swear. I'm, no, 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 I'm not kidding you. If you... Because you're saying, you know, learn what's going on in Armenia. If you had a 15, 20-minute segment a week, just recorded a clip, posted on YouTube, where people can follow you and watch and hear what you have to say with this type of energy. I mean, I, I could see it turning into a snowball effect, and then we'd have a lot more Edgars and the other... Edgar, we'll see. You'd have a bunch of Edgars in Armenia. <laughs> no, honestly. No, no, no. We don't want that. <laughs> be, be, uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be cute or funny or romantic, as you say it. It's not a romantic statement. It's a, I, I, I think if you did that, uh, you know, the followers would grow and eventually people would be like, man, let me, let me test out what Weekend is saying. Let me, let me actually take a visit there. Even the people who've been hesitant to visit Armenia will actually get on a plane and fly there to see, what, what are you talking about? What's all this excitement and passion coming from? I think it's the people that would be right on the fence where they they don't know which way to fall. They would, I think your perspective as far as that information that you're giving people would give them an idea as to, all right, you know what? I think I'm ready to either <laughs> fall on one side of the fence or fall on the other side of the fence. Because right now, as either he's way they're falling, though, right? That's not good. As he's speaking, I'm thinking. Well, hopefully, hopefully you're there to catch him so in Armenia. Two hours you sleep. Because as you're speaking, no you know what I'm thinking. I'm like, <laughs> well, I had I had such a bad experience at the steakhouse in Yerevan. <laughs> maybe I should go maybe, back and give I, it another chance. Maybe I should open a steakhouse in Yerevan and show them how steak is. <laughs> yeah, as you're speaking, I'm like, let me see where where can I possibly would it be near. You Are you going to be serving hookah there? <laughs> no. I just want to... Bro, there's a hookah lounge every other... No, I'm just block. saying. Every other building is a hookah yeah. lounge there. But there's no good steakhouse, so... Yes, yeah. there is. Yes, there is. At least a couple that I know. Good steakhouses. That's a way of him really... And I've had in. some good steaks in the U.S. I've had steaks at at least five of the top ten in the U.S. in different, different cities of the U.S. So I can tell you that we have some good steakhouses. Now we do. We didn't two, three years ago, but now we do. Which one? Should, I, should we should I ask you which Smoke one? Smoking Chef. I'm not an advertiser, guys. <laughs> They're not paying us. Smoke, Smoking Chef. Yeah, I'm not getting paid by the Aramian yeah. brothers, but they do a great job. They've created a whole culture of restaurants in Armenia. 
So that's a good example. Yes, we can do things today that we couldn't even dream of doing five years ago. Look, restaurants, I've seen some of the best looking restaurants in Yerevan where it's like you feel like you're in New York or Vegas or, you know, where they fail even last year, execution. Looks great. They got top-notch kitchen equipment, copper, <laughs> you know, pans. And you're like, dude, this is like Gordon Ramsay, Michelin star execution hmm. that's what in my opinion they so presentation is amazing Pre everything is amazing music you name it dancers from the roof bro they got bars in Yerevan infinity pools on top of rooftops that you don't have in LA it's that final execution are you the most they, important they, 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 need, well, they need help look most restaurants here don't know how to execute well, either, hopefully you know? Although I don't totally agree with you, but I think there's room for improvement. Hopefully someone here today will be hearing us, is or hearing us. A restaurant through we'll come to we'll come to <laughs> Armenia and will will help us put the final touch, the last dot, as you said, on our restaurant business, our restaurant industry. Because every single person in the in the diaspora has something to say or something to do for Armenia. Yeah. More than something, a lot. And that's what I mean by return to Armenia. I don't necessarily mean physically return to Armenia. It's not for everybody. But everybody has something to do. Everybody has an investment to make. And, uh, yeah, we've got a lot of room for improvement. Uh, but we've got more resources than any nation in the world has ever had. You know, I'd say 80% of our population lives outside of Armenia. And people who... who have incredible resources, people who, who are university presidents, who, people who are scientists, doctors, engineers, architects, some of the best of, of those fields. And let's get those minds to invest their know-how, to, to invest their heart and soul into Armenia, even if it's a few days a year. That's a lot of resources. Let's do it. Let me cover, Arno, we haven't forgotten about we have, your yeah, super we have, chat. You guys, we have a bunch of questions yeah. we're going to get to, yes. So, Arno, thanks for the super chat. Um, he says, we have to focus on Sunik. Sunik is the main goal of Turkey and Azerbaijan. Their goal <coughs> is Pan-Turk to be formed. What are your thoughts on Sunik and his comment about uh, Pan-Turk to be formed there? Well, the... Um, the fact that Sunik is uh, the, the poorest Ars region of Armenia is undeniable, even by government figures. And the fact that it is the least populated per square meter, per square kilometer, is also a fact. And the fact that it's our main corridor to Iran and everywhere, and basically the, the uh, world, the, the world, outside of our corridor through Georgia and Russia. Um, so it is a major of major importance to us. This isn't about Sunik being close to our hearts or being the mountainous Armenia, which includes Sunik and Artsakh. In reality, Sunik and Artsakh are one and the same. It's, it's really the same region of Armenia. And um, so it, this isn't about how much we love Sunik. This is about the fact that how much do the Turks value Sunik for their strategic and political gains? And whoever's saying that is right. And that's no secret. Everyone knows that. And um, we 
you know, if you look at the uh, the shortest distance between Sunnik and between uh, Ishkhan Asar and Nahi Javan is, we're talking, I could be wrong by uh, a few kilometers here and there, but I think it's about 51 kilometers. So it's a very short distance. So it's it's a bottleneck of Armenia. And um, losing Sunnik is unimaginable for us. So we need to do everything and, and anything humanly possible to invest in Sunnik, to protect Sunnik in terms of defense, but also in terms of population. The biggest problem we had with Artsakh is the lack of living, the lack of population, and Sunnik suffers from that. And uh, we can't just ask people to go live in Sunnik. You know, we had a lot of letters, a lot of calls, hundreds and hundreds of them during the exodus, forced exodus from Artsakh uh, three months ago, and people were telling us, yeah, take everyone to Sunnik. You know, they should all live, live in Sunnik. All the Artsakhs should live in Sunnik. It doesn't work that way. We're dealing with people here. We're not dealing with cattle. Sorry. Sorry. But people need to decide where they want to live based on their interests, based on their family's interests, based on the fact that their kid is sick and they got to take him to the hospital every other day uh, because, because he's got to have a blood transfusion or something. I mean, everybody's got their conditions in life and their, and their circumstances. And we cannot tell people where to live. We can create conditions for people to want to live in certain places. And that's what it's all about. That's what repatriation is all about. You have to create good living conditions. And something we haven't done in Artsakh, we certainly haven't done in Sunnik uh, during the past 30 years. And we need to start doing that. Instead of just moving people physically and, and artificially creating you know, uh, settlements in Sunnik, we need to create better living conditions in Sunnik. And that's, I would say, Vyodzor and South. And, uh, the, the, you know, the land of Gadig and Nishta. So um, that's, that's a major effort. We're talking, uh, you know, the diaspora organizations. We're talking to government, NGOs. And uh, I think by official government figures, only about six or 7,000 Artsakhsis are living in Sunik today. have settled in Sunik. How many you said? I could be wrong about this, but I think six or 7,000 at most. Um, Although, when the government did make a concerted effort to move as many Artsakhsis to Sunnik as possible, to keep them in Sunnik as possible, but uh, very few took that option. Do you, mean, think, do you think the concern of that would be the fate of Sunnik being the same fate as Shushi? I mean, would you have ever thought that Shushi would literally be just handed over like that? Well, I don't think Shushi was just handed over, but it, that's a... It's another issue, maybe. But, um, but Sunnik being as, um, as endangered as it is, everyone knows that. Artsakhsis know that. So when we were welcoming the Artsakhsis, when we were uh, meeting them in Gornizor and Goris uh, during the forced exodus, we were told by the social, Ministry of Social uh, Services officially that all volunteers need, needed to tell the Artsakhsis, that if they wanted to live, we're talking temporarily here, if they wanted to have free lodging, uh, they could only have it in the regions of Sunnik, uh, Jermuk, and not Vaisor, Sunnik, Jermuk, and Vartanis. Those were the three regions, Vartanis mean, meaning the uh, eastern uh, coast of Lake Sevan, including the city of Vartanis. <coughs> so the eastern, eastern, eastern Vartanis, eastern uh, Gerard Gunik, 
Jermuk area, the villages of Jermuk and the all of all of Tsunik. So bottom line is they were they told us that and we kept offering that to everyone. So I've offered it to hundreds of people. And uh, I'd say maybe two or three percent of them accepted it. We can't blame people for not accepting it. I mean, the conditions they were in, um, the situation they were in, I'm not even going back a year or two or three or 30 years. I'm just saying what they went through during the past 10 months, 12 months or two, three years prior to that, we could not even uh, I'm I'm surprised 3 percent of the people took that offer. So, yeah, they didn't. Most the vast majority didn't take the offer, but um, that's the way it was going to be probably. And and that was okay because the people just didn't feel they felt extremely vulnerable and they wanted to be as far away from Turks and as far away from any kind of, you know, military uh, possibility of military confrontation as possible. So we need to create conditions in Sunik and that takes major infrastructure. It takes roads. It takes electricity. It takes gas. Um, and it takes accessibility. It takes, <clears throat> it takes serious funding by the government of social services because you got to create conditions. You got to have hospitals. You got to have people aren't going to want to live in a, in a city if there is not a good hospital and a good school and a good kindergarten, good kindergarten. So the government has a major role to play in terms of institutions and in terms of infrastructure and uh, NGOs and other organizations and individuals have a major role to play as well. So, and obviously it goes without saying when people live there, we'll have a better protected border, but, um, Borders, borders start from the remote regions of Armenia, and we need to, you know, we need to be aware of the fact that uh, the government has the, the only and major responsibility of of protecting, physically protecting the front lines. But at the end of the day, if there are not enough people living in those in those regions, uh, what's the point of protecting them? I mean, what's the soldier going to protect if there is no one living behind him for the next, you know, for as far as thirty kilometers? So yeah, we got to live near the borders. We got to we got to live uh, behind the front lines, and that's easy for me to say. Yes, it is. But uh, if we create strong front lines, people will feel safe and live in those in those areas. On the other hand, if our front lines are weak and penetrable, then yeah, no one's going to want to live on the front lines, and that's what's happening right now. People are leaving the Sunik area, uh, and there's a major exodus from from, from Sunik today, uh, and this might be hard or, or, you know, very sad for people to hear, but it's the reality and I'm not going to hide it. It's because we have neglected Sunik like we have neglected Artsakh for the last 30 years. So time for change, time to change that fact. There's, I, I hate shedding light on this uh, documentary, but I got to mention it. And a lot of people can, you, I mean, you can go watch it. I would say don't click and watch it. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately I did. Uh, I personally believe it's Azeri propaganda, but it's a documentary that was released about two or three months ago called The Great Return. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah. You've heard of it, right? Okay. So The Great Return is basically, um, it's about Artsakh, which they call Gharabakh, and they call it what it is, The Great Return. And again, I don't believe a lot of what they're, speaking about and what they're showing i still think it's ai generated i still think it's turkish propaganda azeri propaganda but uh the lands that they've taken away from our people they've already began to build houses there governmental buildings train stations airports people have began to flood into those areas and began to occupy those homes and this isn't a matter of months 
months. Why is it that we can't do the same thing? You know, we mentioned the diaspora, we mentioned all these telethons, all these nonprofits, you know, continuing to support Armenia, continuing to aid Armenia, and we can't do what they did in a matter of months? Yeah, we can do it. Why can't it? Why hasn't it been done? Just during the 2020 war, how much money did we raise again? I forgot. In a matter of uh, 346. Oh, the total or us? Total, total. No, not us. We, oh, uh, the wise nuts we generate. Yeah, 180 we, million. 180 million from the, from the diaspora. And this is not mentioning people, you know, very wealthy business owners that live in France, in Russia, in Ukraine. It doesn't matter where it is. And, and the, the amount of tourism money that comes in. Why is it that these jackasses are able to create a documentary and create, again, like I said, I, be, I personally believe it's Turkish and Azeri propaganda of them building homes, building governmental buildings, building train stations, airports, and flooding their people into our homeland, yet we can't do the same in Sunik? Again, it's called, the, it's called the Great Return. That's what it's called. And you could, you could find it, unfortunately, on YouTube. I, I, well, I, I was going to ask, have you been there? But there, but you can't even go back to even see it, right? Go back to where? Oh, to oh, like just Kofsaka to visit Artsakh. To they won't let you in. No, I mean, are you are you talking about Artsakh? Yeah. No. Because they're totally saying no. That's the, that's that's the border's BS. closed. It's completely. Uh, it's not occupied. It's completely. That's what I'm saying. I believe it's Turkish propaganda. I yeah. believe it's all AI generated. Mm. But they're putting that out there, and they're calling it "quote unquote" the Great Return. Well, maybe that's their way of either discouraging the Armenians or encouraging their own people. That you see, look. it's also. I feel like me and Vegan talk sometimes too. Like sometimes I'm down. Sometimes he's down. As strong as he is, like during, when he was in Goris, I had to kind of raise him up because he was. Obviously, what he was seeing every day. And I mean, I was sitting home here and asking him. There were a couple of days I told him, go sleep. Because now your mind is playing tricks on you. You need to rest. But at the same time, I'm like, every time we feel down as an Armenian, I said, this is the, this is what the Turks want. For us to be always... To, once we're down and we want to turn away from it, the t- Turks are getting their agenda done. Yeah. I, no, as, as you were speaking, uh, a friend of mine... He's called on the show Varej. I don't know if you know Varej. He's just sent texted these pictures from. Mm-hmm. He came and saw me when I was in Goris. Yeah. yeah. Those are the pictures he. People are leaving. But yeah, every time, just just one thing. Every time you get down and you feel like, you know, that's it, I'm done. I don't want to think about it. I'm tired of this, this. That means the Turks have got their agenda passed. They're on us. So that's the day I'm like, hey, we can't be down. That's what their ideology is. That's what they want to. They want us to make to believe. That's how they want us to feel. We can't be like that. That's when we need to raise up even more. That's just the way of when, getting when, up and fighting for it. Yeah. When we think about all, the, I mean, obviously, the moment we're born, we're fighting to survive, right? That's the moment the, a baby's out of the mom womb. They're fighting to survive. They take their first breath outside of their environment. The, the uh, 
but 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 when we keep on talking about all this fighting and fighting and we got to defend and we got to we can't let the propaganda it, it's like are 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 we ever going to just live Stop. and just enjoy life or we're always going to be in this some type of battle and then raising our kids to be prepared for battle and then they have to raise their mate we have to make sure their kids and our great great ki- our grandkids and great grandkids they're all struggle for have the same mindset like you said in 50 years we in the diaspora we may not remember armenia but which i i don't believe that i i don't agree with that because i'm sure 50 years ago that generation said the same thing about us just like before i had kids you know everyone oh your kids are not going to speak armenian i'm like my kids will speak better armenian than you and then now my kids speak very proper armenian well wait till they get a little bit older they'll forget it okay now we'll wait until they get and then they'll have some other bullshit excuse wait till they get married then they'll forget it <laughs> It's like, wait till they have kids. <laughs> what, you're, what you're saying, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing in my house too. Like, I have four kids I, every day. Like, even I'm only speaking about Armenian, Armenian. But uh, Vegan had a story to say last year, I think. It was about the Fresno Armenians. <laughs> when during genocide, when people moved to Fresno, uh, you can't say the story better than I did. So, basically, when, when we had a whole community in Fresno in the 1920s, is mainly populated by Armenians, schools, everything was Armenian. But now, if you go to Fresno, most of the Armenians are third-generation Armenians. And yeah, they're Armenians by last name. Some of them change their last names. But majority of them don't, they're not associated with Armenia anymore, even though they are Armenians. And they were the the migrants of 1920, you know, the genocide. Right? They came strong, they built a community. Everybody knows about the Fresno community. I mean, we have, I'm sorry on there, we have graveyards there. But now, if you think about it, Fresno, we know about Fresno. So once in a while, we'll go visit uh, Telegan's graveyard or whatever. But in general, Fresno is not the same Armenian community as it was before. Because the third yeah. generation, four years, is kind of fading away. And I know we have a bigger uh, community here. And, and much play, bigger, much bigger. But still, like eventually, I'll tell you just a simple story. Like last year, I was driving to Vegas. My five-year-old, we're sitting in the car. I have... American music playing, why can the English music playing? She's complaining to me, what are the stupid songs you put in? Put Armenian music. Fighting with the older ones, my 16-year-old and my 13-year-old. She went to school, kindergarten. It was the third month already. Now I'm fighting with her to talk Armenian at home. See, like, in summer, we were going to Vegas to visit family. She was complaining that she didn't want to listen to English music. Even though it was a good music, she didn't want it. She told me, that changes, this is stupid music. Now she's, Now I'm fighting with her to See? speaking. Now he's he's trying to prove me wrong that I, <laughs> I'm just telling you. <laughs> no, I, even though I, even though she's she, I'll, put, I'll put her, she'll sing Nezde songs. She knows like she's she loves her, but she's going to school for three months, kindergarten. Mm-hmm. She's talking at Well you can't comes, you can't blame her. She's growing I know, up here. I know. But that's what I'm saying. When you're saying fifty years, it it all years, it, it depends on how you raise your children and yeah. what your morals and what your values but are. But do you think the majority of the Armenians are gonna Like you're saying at home, this is what are doing. Hey, Gurjan, I, I was born in Armenia, but yeah. I moved to America when I was one. I was I was a year old when I moved to Ar- to America. Yeah. Do I speak English to my parents? Absolutely not. I speak Armenian to my yeah. parents. Do I speak Armenian to my kids? I do. 
recently, unfortunately, I've been speaking English to my daughter because she's in a flag program in at her at her school, and her Armenian's actually gotten better than mine. And uh, you know, you're intimidated, and I am. I'm literally intimidated. Like I told you, this, the the traffic story, right? I, we're driving, and she goes uh, in in Armenian. She goes, "Papa, uh, inchuas the chatsanum." And I was like, I, I turned around. I'm like, what, what did you just say? And you know, it's it's words like that where you know, I'm happy that she's using it because you know it 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 preserves the language, and I know for a fact that her Armenian won't diminish because you know it, it's a language that I hold near and dear to my heart because that's what I've spoken to my parents my entire life till today, and same with my wife. She's till today she speaks Armenian with her parents, and my kids speak Armenian. Not only to us, but to our, their grandparents as well. So it all depends on how you how you upbring your kids. Again, I'm not saying you're raising your kids wrong. Uh-huh. I'm not saying that, but you know, it, it varies from person to person. I would say it does. I'm not saying it doesn't. But the community living outside of living in this community, living in the in America, basically, eventually, it's yeah, we're still more or less the first generation or second generation. I'm saying like third, fourth generation. I don't know. Just, uh, just looking at the history of it, Fresno. Yeah, it could. It's kind of like, um, it's a hundred year history. Our but history no, is know, only twenty year history. But again, I also, I also look at, you know, it's it's terrible for me to say this, but I don't, I really don't think a language makes a person. A person makes a person. You can, you can be an Armenian, not speak the language, but be an amazing individual that can not only help your community here, but help the community in Armenia. Well, that's true, but I mean, you're talking about. Yeah, like I, 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 but I get it. Yeah. I, again, like I said, I hate yeah. saying it. I, I, I wish that everybody could preserve the language. I mean, in all honesty, I think the Armenian language is probably one of the most butchered languages in the world. Oh. I mean, till today, I don't. I, I really don't. I personally don't know anybody that speaks Armenian. Armenian, whether you have Arabic words in there, Turkish words in there, Russian words in there, Farsi words in there. I know. You know. Yeah, sometimes Armen- when I can't find the word, I say "makro and I say it in Russian, Russian word because I don't even know what the. Arabic yeah, word like is. today it with sucks. one of one, with one of the agents in my office, you know, we're, we're sitting down and you know he needed a tie for a Christmas party that we're gonna be uh, that we're gonna be at on Wednesday, and I said, "Van, do you want?" Was mes karavat berem koamar, and he said, "Each." I said, "Oh, fuck. I'm like, uh, I'm like, karavat does not mean galastuk for him, and galastuk does not mean karavat for." Well, it does, but like I know both both words for it, but unfortunately, you know, like I said, our language is so butchered that you know uh, it's it's inevitable that you could look at it as eventually just kind of in America, especially you know, changing completely, being what was it, Armglish or in yeah, Armglish, English words being implemented in Armenian language. I know. Going back to the question, I want to say something about this unique region. Yeah, I mean, that, when we, before the exodus, we had a meeting, we talked, and yeah, we're not, as an NGO, as a nonprofit, that's our, obviously, we want everybody to, we want to put everybody in Sunik and Raupan and Meri and, and all those areas. Yeah, that's our strategy too. But at the same time, you cannot force people. You cannot tell somebody that just had bonds fall on family members, kids dying, to say, no, you have to stay here. As an NGO, we're going to help you, but you have to stay here. Otherwise, no, you're not going to get anything. Yeah, the strategy is that. But just like Vegan is saying, we have to, 
there's a lot of NGOs, there's a lot of nonprofits. I talk to a lot of people, you know, um, I, I even donate to a lot of nonprofits too, even though I, we have our own nonprofit. Well, you, got, but, you guys have an organization, uh, support, uh, support, support, uh, support of, uh, support our heroes, support our heroes. There we go. Uh, SOH. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about support our heroes before we, we get into, uh, what you guys do exactly. Go for it, Rick. Well, um, as an organization that we started, I mean, in reality, I've been, uh, this is my second nonprofit organization in Armenia. The first one was, uh, it's back to the 1990s, and we, our project was to repopulate the liberated regions of Artsakh. And we did some major projects. We built basically uh, complete villages from ground up up until uh, basically 2016. And uh, in 2016, um, when the war, when the so-called four-day war started, um, by the time it started, it started and it ended. By the time it ended, um, it was so short. It was only a half-day war, really. Major confrontations took less than a day. And um, we drove out there the second day when we found out about it, when we realized how serious it was. And uh, we, th the goal was to go to the front line and serve, thinking the war was still going on. But the reality is by the time we got there, the second day, which was on the 5th of April, um, all confrontations had ended. And all confrontations had ended on the third, actually. So I, I went out there on the fourth. Um, the bottom line is we uh, realized we were not needed on the front line and and, uh, and most volunteers hadn't even arrived yet. But even after that, volunteers came and basically just spent a week or two on the front lines and there was no fighting going on. So we realized there were some dire needs on the front lines. And spending two weeks on the front lines made me realize how vulnerable our soldiers were. Uh, and uh, the needs were so great and not being uh, a person of an expert in international uh, trade of guns, <laughs> I'm not that person. So I realized there is a lot of lot we can do and, and we can help the, the army on the logistical side and on the medical side. So we started uh, providing support to the army. So we drove back to, to Yerevan and we, uh, I called some friends of mine in Yerevan, lots of friends of mine and also some friends in the U.S. And we started gathering uh, food and, and uh, sleeping bags and, and all kinds of assistance for the soldier on the front line. Cause we, we, we literally, I mean, I was in, in, uh, I was in the mud when I was in the, in the, in the trench and I realized, God, you, know, you know, I'm not a soldier and I can't take this, you know, and soldiers are living in these conditions on the front line, uh, being in the most dangerous places in, in our country. And, uh, they don't even have the basic, necessities you know they don't have water they don't have uh, sleeping bags they don't have uh, rain ponchos they don't have they don't have anything they, if they're injured there's no means to get them back to the nearest hospital military hospital they, there's no uh, you know medical uh, facilities were not properly equipped there were the needs were so great in every way uh, in every sector but we realized we could help in the logistical and medical sector so that's how the whole thing started it's, it didn't start out as a we didn't think we were going to fund, we were going to found a new organization. We just thought we we're going to get together with some friends and we we're going to start helping. That's how it started. And one, one thing led to another and uh, it turned, turned into a, a large scale operation and the 
as the days were going by, it was getting larger and larger. More people were getting involved. We were, we were now ordering sleeping bags from, from Germany and, and, you know, uh, rain ponchos from the U S uh, high quality NATO standard. <clears throat> and we were trying to get all the, uh, um, uh, whatever was necessary, the materials from various parts of the world to start, to start, uh, basically, you know, uh, making those same sleeping bags or same quality sleeping bags in Armenia. Uh, so we started and same goes for tents and other, other help. So, uh, for during the following days and weeks and months, uh, we got involved in several major projects and we supplied major, uh, assistance, you know, thousands and thousands of various assistance, uh, to the army, uh, and everything we did went straight to the Artsakh defense army. Uh, so we didn't give it to the Yerevan, uh, army, which, you know, the Artsakh defense army was a, basically a, a division of the, uh, Armenian armed forces. But bottom line is we wanted to make sure everything got to the most vulnerable, um, defense lines of Armenia in Artsakh. So, uh, and then it just got larger and, and more involved and more people got involved. And, and, uh, we started, uh, basically three people started the organization. Uh, my friend, my dear friend, Harach, uh, and, um, my other dear friend, Minas and myself. And then, um, people, other friends of ours basically, uh, saw what we were doing, trusted in our, uh, belief, trusted in our, in us morally. And they started investing and, uh, several people just got involved in the organization and one thing led to another. And we, you know, we became a formal organization and, uh, it took several years to be incorporated as a nonprofit in the U S. Um, but we have that. Uh, we got that done several years ago and, uh, we, we believe there's always a place to work, to do good things for an NGO. And, um, we at the same time believe that everything an NGO or NGOs do should be coordinated very closely and approved and coordinated closely by, um, the proper government institutions, the relevant government institutions. I am not saying never have done that. I'm not saying that we should give the money to the government and let the government do the do whatever is needed to be done. No, we're not doing that. We've never done that. We're going to do what we believe is right, but we're going to coordinate it with the government at the end of the day, especially when it comes to the army. Uh, but we are, we're a nonprofit charitable organization and everything we've done has been charitable. Even if we've helped uh, the veterans and uh, so everything we've done has been on a charitable basis and we continue to do that. We were doing it during the blockade. We were doing it before the blockade uh, we're doing it today for the Artsakhtis because we've always believed, and I've said this many, many times over the years, uh, Armenia is not a parcel of land. It's not, uh, and when I say Armenia, I always mean Armenia, including Artsakh. That is true today also. So um, Armenia isn't um, a piece of land in the South Caucasus. Armenia is the Armenians. Armenia is every single soul who lives in Armenia. And every single soul who feels part of Armenia, who doesn't live in Armenia, that's Armenia. So if we want to protect our country, we got to protect our people. we got to create a better condition of life for our people. So right now, the past three months, we've been in an emergency mode trying to basically uh, save the Artsakhsis from drowning, literally. I mean, that's, uh, it's, it's, you know, starting from the first days when we were... We were uh, welcoming them and, and feeding them and, and uh, 
giving them a place to rest for a, for a night until they can continue their, their journey uh, to we've basically, you know, it's hard for me to say now because the numbers are climbing up every single day, literally. And uh, I'd say over 75, I'd say over 80 families are now being supported by us uh, on a serious basis. We're not talking a blanket or two. We're talking um, kitchen appliances, good quality kitchen appliances. Uh, we're talking, you know, like refrigerators, uh, stoves, cooktops, uh, washing machines. We're talking, yes, we're talking blankets. Everything is made in Armenia. We've ordered everything. We're talking good quality mattresses. We're talking bed sets. We are talking majorly also about renting their homes. We're literally renting their homes. I was, paying about, for I was about to ask as far as housing is concerned. Housing is something we've been involved in from the very beginning. We had rented two hotels in Godis and Sisian, and we, the entire hotels. So we had people stay in those hotels um, for at least a night, if not two. Some of them stayed longer because they really had nowhere else to go because we couldn't find places for them to stay for sometimes uh, for several days. So, but we had volunteers everywhere, including uh, Sunik and Vyodzor and Yerevan. And uh, our volunteers were helping us and our board members were helping us find places. And, uh, and many of the places uh, were found by the uh, Artsasis themselves, but they had no way of renting those places. So we have been and are continuing to support the Artsasis in, uh, in terms of uh, housing, in terms of the basic necessities of life because whatever they're getting from the government and they are getting support from the government, but it's not nearly as, as much as it needs to be. Uh, and I'm not criticizing the government. Um, but at the same time, I do think that they could have done a better job so far, but it's been overwhelming. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's hard. It's, it's, it's easy for me to say they should have done better, but the bottom line is I believe that we should have done a better job. I should, I believe we should have been better prepared, but it is what it is. And, um, as I've always said, we are all the government. So if, if, the, if a certain ministry cannot do what it's supposed to do fully, then we're here to help. And um, so this isn't about, uh, you know, knocking somebody off and, and saying, you're not doing a good job, in this case, the government, and uh, we'll do it for you. No, we're just looking at what the government is doing and what they are not doing. And what are the, what are the areas where we can do a better job than they can? And there's plenty of places. And uh, one of the things that I've always said we should do and we have done for years, we've done this for 30 years, we've done this in Artsakh is um, be involved in their lives. This isn't just about financing their, you know, getting a home from them. And, and, uh, and oh, yeah, you know, we, we're also funding several businesses now. Uh, we've started, we started businesses that have been lost in Artsakh. Uh, and we started the furniture factory uh, in Yerevan, in uh, Masif, Fifth Masif. And uh, it was uh, a factory that was supplying us with furniture for the Artsakhsis in Artsakh for years. And uh, the owner of the factory is a, is a trusted, uh, worthy friend of ours. And uh, we believed, and we were right to believe that, that he can, he can uh, be worthy of our investment. And the investment was basically uh, where we were going to purchase all of the uh, equipment for him. And he was going to use them for the next five years at a minimum. And after that, it all belongs to him. So that's the basis of our investments or, you know, establishment, establishment of businesses. We have several businesses we're in the middle of establishing right now, different types of businesses. The bottom line is we want to make sure the autopsies feel at home in Armenia. And, um, but the first thing we got to do is make sure these people can survive. So getting a job is the first condition. 
we don't even want them to think about going to Russia or somewhere else. So they need to understand that, uh, yes, Artsakh was their small part of the homeland, and it's it's where they belong. And Artsakh was unique. You know, it isn't like Artsakh wasn't like, you know, Hrazdan. Artsakh was uh, a very unique uh, type or kind Artsakhs, different type of Armenians. They're they're uh, they were isolated from the rest of Armenia for centuries, and but they remained Armenia, and they remained more Armenian than than many parts of Armenia. So, um, and uh, in terms of their language, their culture, uh, in terms of their pride, you know, the, the, how they prided themselves of being Armenian, uh, of, of how being the Artsakhti kind of Armenian, uh, it, they were very unique. They are very unique, and we need to protect all that. We need to protect the Artsakhti kind. And uh, the first thing we got to do is make sure these people survive. And uh, this isn't about making announcements on TV about saying there are brothers and sisters. Of course there are brothers and sisters, but what are we doing about it today? And um, so we're, we're trying to basically recreate the lives of as many Artsakhtis as possible. Uh, the need is great, is incredibly great. We can't possibly, uh, you know, uh, help everybody, but we're being very selective in the sense that we want to make sure our, our dollars People who are helping us uh, fund those projects, uh, basically, they deserve us to be very careful about how we spend that money. Um, and uh, we are being very careful, as we always have been. So we want to make sure whoever gets assistance from us, A, needs the assistance, and B, deserves that assistance, and C, finally, and very importantly, uh, is not getting that, that assistance from somewhere else. So those are that takes a lot of energy and resources for us to check all that. So we're not, you know, just giving away things. We're not just giving away rental uh, money. We're we're actually spending time with these people. We're going and visiting them. You're vetting them out, basically. We're vetting them out, but we're also making them feel like we're part of their family, and we are part of their family. I know every single person we're helping intimately. I know their kids' names. I know their family. I know I've been, I've known these people for for years and years. I didn't just get to know them yesterday. Where are the majority of the people moving to? I mean, I know they're obviously moving into Armenia proper, but are they in Yerevan? Are they in Gyumri? Are they in Ejbiatsin? Where are the majority of them choosing to move to? Um, we don't, honestly, we've been so busy trying to, you know, execute our projects that we haven't really done a study, but we have a list which, um, keeps changing every day and we haven't done a very good job of keeping up with that list, but we do have a list and it's, um, I can't tell you percentage wise, but I can tell you, uh, the large distributions are, uh, yes, in Yerevan, there, there are, we have multiple families in, in, in the city of Echmiadzin and the villages of Echmiadzin, uh, quite a few families in, uh, uh, Saban and Harazdan and Sevan. And, uh, we have, uh, a family of, uh, a family in, uh, Aravnazor, which is one of the villages of Yeregnazor, between Arani and Yeregnazor. Um, and uh, I'm probably forgetting. We we have families in, in Sunik, in Goris, in Karashen, in Rapan, uh, Gaban, I should call it. Uh, so we have families everywhere. I, I can't say uh, that we have any families in Gumri. We do not. We do not have any families right now in Lori. Um I don't think there are too many families in Lori and the Vanazor area, but there are families there and there are families in Goris. I mean, in, uh, in, uh, yeah. community also, yeah. but we just, you know, it's been such that, uh, our families haven't moved out there or the families we, yeah. we've been supporting at least. Yeah. And more is being added to the list every day, but we're being very careful and very selective, not because we don't believe everyone deserves our assistance, but only because we have limited resources in terms of 
finances, in terms of um, uh, time, you know, um, and uh, we need to be careful about what we do and how we do it. That's all. Guys, we're going to pin the website to donate to supportourheroes.am. Click on the link. Uh, Armon pinned it on Facebook, on YouTube, and on Twitter. Um, go directly to them. You can donate that. You could donate there. Um, you know, all proceeds are there to help. You know, displaced families and uh, everything that you know. Vegan just mentioned as far as helping these people, you know, get back on their feet. Because you look at, you know, your own people being ethnically cleansed from, you know, our land and having to start from scratch again, uh, a little bit of a boost can help them not only, you know, their pride, but help their entire family just recoup and rejuvenate themselves to the point where they say, okay, you know what, you know, we were kicked down, we're going to dust ourselves off and we're going to regroup and start over again. And, uh, you know, any any sort of monetary uh, donation can help. So just click on the link. It'll take you directly to their site, and you can donate there. I, I wanted to address Anait's comment about, because she was asking, she mentioned several times why you're not critical of the uh, current government, because they've pretty much handed away um, Artsakh to the Azeris and the Turks. Um, do you do you want to respond to that, or should I say what I have to say first? Or, um, well, your question has an answer included in it, and that's very typical uh, of us as Armenians because we're Middle Easterns, and we'd like to uh, we'd like to answer our question ourselves before we ask someone else to answer it. And and I'll be honest with you, because uh, that's just most of us are, and I'm guilty of that myself, but. Uh, the reality is that um, I have my own conviction of what's happened in, in Armenia the past 30 years. And I've lived in it for most of those 30 years, more than half of those 30 years. And uh, it's easy to say that the current government has handed over Artsakh. Um, I am not, never have been a government official, never have been part of today's government or the political party uh, who runs Armenia today. Um, and... I can say this, um, and I'm not a member of any other party, and uh, I consider myself, uh, in that sense, an Armenian who's absolutely not neutral, and I hate that word, but I also consider myself someone who's free to think and say whatever he wants to, and that's always the way I've been. And I've also supported anyone and everyone who's done a good thing for my country and my homeland and my people. So uh, I'm free to think and say whatever I say, and I've always been that way. And um, I can say this today. Um, what happened in the past three years and um, what this government has done in the past five years um, is no different than what any other government would have done um, after what we lived through during the 25 years prior to that. In the sense that uh, we were given an Armenia that was in shambles, that was basically had already fallen apart. And we all knew that. You know, you guys might, have, might not have realized that in the diaspora because you were coming and seeing the new steakhouses and the, and the lighted streets and the, and the beautiful downtown Yerevan. But the fact is, um, we knew that 
we were extremely vulnerable as a result of how Armenia was managed for 25, 30 years. So that was definitely not um, the result of what this government started doing in 2018. That was a result of what the previous governments had done prior to that. And this government definitely could have done a better job of managing the uh, conditions, the circumstances that they were inherited. And they did a horrible job of managing those circumstances. Um, why and how and when and where, there's a, that's a long story and a long discussion. Probably not today's discussion. But, and everybody has their opinion. But it's important for people to be informed because, because if they're not informed, then, then, then their opinion is based on what they feel. And um, I am not, right now, I feel confident to say that everything I'm, that's, that's come out of, coming out of my mouth is not based on my feelings. It's based on what I know and what I've seen and what I've lived. And um, we didn't have an army that could, that could have protected our homeland, could have protected Artsakh in 2016. We didn't have it in 2018. We didn't have it in 2020. Not by any stretch of imagination. Um, and... Why we didn't have that army? Why we only have two million or less people living in Armenia today, uh, which is no different what, than what the population was back in you know five years ago, or even less today than it was. But why we had less than two million in 2018? Uh, that says a lot about the state of our country during the 25 years prior to that. So instead of being five million, six million, because the Soviet Union inherited an Armenia to us that was, according to official figures, three and a half million population. Yes, there was war, there was uh, earthquake and all that. But the bottom line is we went down instead of going up, instead of staying at, the, at least the same. So uh, we ripped our country apart for 30 years. And, um, and as the old saying goes, you know, we're, we're, everybody deserves, every, every nation, every country, every society deserves its, its leaders. So uh, did we deserve those leaders um, in a like a sentimental way, we didn't, because if you if you think of um, you know the martyrs we've had, uh, so yeah, no, we didn't deserve those leaders. We deserved much better than that. Um, we didn't deserve thugs to rule us. But going back to what I the other side of the coin is the fact that yes, we did deserve these these leaders because we let them come to power, we let them stay and stay in power, and um, we just talked about we just complained about it over over coffee. So the vast majority of Armenians in Armenia and outside of Armenia uh, tolerated those regimes and tolerated the, the looting. And um, so we created what we are living today. We being not just our governments, not just the successive governments of Armenia for the past 30 years, but us as a nation, because we're, we're responsible for those governments, whether we live in Armenia or outside of Armenia. So... Um, this isn't about what happened the last five years only. This is about what happened before that. And if we don't come to that realization today, we're going to repeat the same mistakes again. Because every time uh, uh, an event happens, you have to look back. You have to look at the, at, the, at, the, at the event in a global sense and also in terms of time and realize what has led to those events. And this goes back to what I said earlier. The 2020 war was lost before it even started. We were massacred the day before it started. So the um, fact is, when I arrived in, uh, in Artsakh on the 27th, that evening, it was 5 o'clock or something, um, 
I remember the words that came out of my my military leader's mouth. I remember those words, and I'll never forget those words. He said, we're done. We're done. This was 5 o'clock, September 27th. Okay? And the situation was much worse. The number of martyrs was much, was much higher than what they were announcing, of course. Uh, and, and I'm not blaming them for that. I mean, the fact is, in 2016, they told us there were 12 people who had been martyred. In reality, it was 84. And they kept that secret for a day or two. Uh, those those decisions are often, you know, strategic decisions or, or you know, the, they, they, they do what they have to do to not demoralize the soldier on the front line, demoralize the people, uh, you know, the, the population. So I'm not criticizing those decisions. All I'm saying is um, we were basically uh, done with the day the war started. It isn't. So it wasn't about how the war went. It was about were we prepared for that war uh, when it started. We were not in any by any stretch of imagination. Uh, and we were doomed to lose that war the way we lost it. And not because we didn't fight it hard, not because we didn't have heroes, not because we didn't love our country, because we just were not ready for that war in 2020. We were ready for that war in 1988. We were not ready again in 2020. And let's be ready for the next war. And that war could be on the front lines. I think it will be on the front lines, but I also believe it will be everywhere else. It will be about a stronger Armenia. And we have every, the, the thing that really has always bothered me is we have every bit of resource to create the Armenia, to create the homeland that we've always dreamed of. You know, I, I grew up in Lebanon and, and uh, just seeing Armenia, seeing Armenia once for a second in my life was the greatest dream I could ever imagine. And um, we have it. We, it's ours. What are we doing with it? There are a lot of nations who don't have what we have. And so let's start appreciating it and let's start, let's start living it. And whether we're in Armenia or not, let's not live in Armenia. And um, let's not politicize everything. Let's be realistic. Let's be informed. The reason I say what I say today in answer to your question and uh, our, our commenter is uh, it, it, we didn't lose Artsakh in the past five years. We didn't lose it in the past three years. We lost it in the past 30 years. Every morning we woke up, we woke up in Armenia or anywhere else in the world as Armenians. We lost Artsakh. And so it all came down to, it all culminated to what happened on September 27, 2020. It was bound to happen. If our enemy was not Azerbaijan, if it was, uh, and I'm saying this hypothetically, if it was a country like the U.S. or France, we would have, we would have lost it 15 years ago. You know? The fact that Azerbaijan is so corrupt that doesn't really have a government system. It's, it's, it's a base of a bunch of thugs ruling a family, a couple of families ruling the, uh, the whole country um, was in there, obviously, was, was working against them. If it was an organized, well-organized, uh, you know, uh, well-put-together uh, governmental system, uh, they would have done what they did to us many, many years ago. They could have. They didn't because only because they were they had their own problems, their own corruption, their own, you know, looting going on in their country and still going on. But that's their problem. If we can call that a country, of course, it's not even a country. It's just a, you know, it's a it's, it's a geographic area that was uh, put Gift, together. Gifted to them. Gifted to them in, in you know, in 1920s uh, as, a, as a Sovietized area. And as a result of politics that went on in the South Caucasus at the time. And, and then because the Soviet Union fell apart, it became an independent country. But the bottom line is um, we, 
in order to go forward the correct way. We need to realize why we are where we are. And this isn't the result of five years of mismanagement. This is the result of 25 years prior to that also of not only mismanagement, but major looting, major stealing, major corruption. And uh, it's not mismanagement. Mismanagement is when, when you don't know how to manage. Now, these people, a lot of them were very informed and they knew how to manage. They knew how to manage their own, uh, their own corruption. And they did a pretty good job at it. Where now we can't, we can't even try these people because, uh, you know, they're they've got their their money hidden under several layers, you know. And uh, so we got we anyone who's informed, I believe strongly, will will agree with me. Um, so let's not be politicized. Let's just be informed about why why we are where we are where we are, and let's um, let's do the right thing. And the right thing is. Um, let's, it doesn't matter who the government is. We're not directly working with the government today, but we're certainly coordinating with the government. You know, if I'm going to a village and I want to get something done, yeah, I'm asking for the, you know, the leaders of the village to tell me, to give me a list of all the artists living there. And uh, I'm not taking their words for it in terms of they're telling me, well, this guy needs this, this guy needs that. I'm not taking their words for it. I'm doing my own homework, but I need their assistance and I'm taking it. And uh, then I'm doing my own homework and I'm not, uh, and, you know, we're investing time and money and, and, uh, and effort in doing our homework. It takes a lot of effort to, to do that homework. And, uh, and we're not, you know, we're not following their, their orders. We're not, we never have, you know, even when we worked with the army uh, in supplying medical equipment and, and logistics, we, we never really followed their orders per se. We just, if they asked for something, uh, we said, okay, we'll evaluate it ourselves, you know, help us convince us that that's needed. And that's how we always worked. It's how we always work today. And that's the way it's going to be. All right. We hope that answered your question. <laughs> I hope so. That was, that was as thorough as it gets. Edgar, our uh, sick leave co-host has a question. Um, do you see more similarities between the government today and prior or more differences between the two? In terms of what? Similarities in terms of? that That's all he texted me. <laughs> Edgar, if you want to elaborate on your question. I, I think maybe he means, you know, the overall structure and running of the country. Okay. Or maybe even how they dealt with the war. By the way, let me make a quick, I wanted to address to Anait as well. Um, look, Anait, I don't think majority of us are um, too fond of the current admi administration here in the U.S. But we don't stop living. We don't stop uh, moving forward and doing what we need to do in our day-to-day -day lives, which is taking care of our families, going to work, improving our lives in every aspect. We, we don't say, well, I'm not happy with the current administration, so I'm going to kind of put everything on hold and wait to see what who the next president or next city mayor or county mayor is. Um, we, we do what we need to do. So it's no different in Armenia or any other country, I think. Um, we can't sit around and wait and hopefully for a better administration and then, all right, now we're ready to jump in 
and do our part. That's just, uh, you know, yeah. my... But, but yeah, Edgar is saying... Uh, yeah, exactly like, what I basically okay, said. You're reading, so, yeah. yeah, so basically Edgar was saying, you know, yes, exactly what I said. So uh, the previous government compared to today's government as far as how they handle the war, how they're operating the government, uh, that's basically what he's asking. Well, as far as how they handled the war, uh, if the talk, of, if the question is about the 2020 war... Um, you know, decisions are made on the ground, and I'm talking, um, you know, uh, logistical decisions. Strategic decisions are made by, um, and that's not just true for the, for the army during, during a war. It's true for any government institution, whether it's a ministry of justice or ministry of health or whatever. Um, and I can tell you without any doubt that logistical decisions were not made in Yerevan. They were made in Artsakh by the Artsakh Defense Army uh, generals. Yeah. And, and, uh, and those decisions were sometimes right, sometimes wrong. I'm not aware of every one of them, of course. I'm aware of many decisions that were made on the, on the ground on a daily basis because we were there. And, and uh, so we were aware or subject to those decisions. But I can tell you that... Uh, and, and, you know, we were criticized during the war and after the war, especially, of being disorganized. Have you guys ever heard of or read about an army, about a battle where the losing side is organized? Thank you. We didn't just lose this war. We were massacred during this war. The balance of power was even more than 10 to 1. And And when I say balance, I don't just mean in terms of numbers, in terms of... Uh, quantity of weapons in terms of mobility. I mean, all of the above in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the ability to, to dominate uh, the land. So every way you look at it, the Azeris, the Turks, the Turkish army who participated, literally participated in the war, uh, their special forces were on the ground. And I'm not even talking about the jihadists from Syria. Um, they, those forces, the uh, enemy forces were basically... Um, overwhelming us. It wasn't a fair fight. Uh, it wasn't about being organized or not being organized. Uh, so the bottom line is uh, we, we were disorganized, but that was a, mostly a result of the fact that we didn't have any means to be organized. And, you know, it takes a lot to be organized, even when you're losing. If you want to stay or have any, uh, you know, uh, hope of being some kind of organization uh, in your defense forces, you want to have communications. And communications is a very expensive and, and a very large investment in a in a uh, in an army, and uh, it, it, we should have invested in major communications years prior to that to that war, and uh, we didn't have those communications. The army didn't have the proper communications, and uh, so how can you stay organized when you don't have the proper communications? You know, and it takes, I'd say, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars to invest for years to train everyone on those communications. We didn't have anything close to it. I mean, their communication systems were, uh, you know, 50 years ahead of us. So, yeah, we didn't invest uh, enough or nearly enough to be able to stay organized during a major losing battle or even a winning battle for that matter. So um, we, I don't believe that the administration in Yerevan um, had a major role to play in the, in the day-to-day operations in the sense that um, – Decisions in Yerevan was resulted in the war being lost. 
I, I strongly don't believe that. I think the outcome would have been the same. Um, and the bottom line is the, the generals who led the, the fight, they, are, they were the same generals who had years of experience, who knew the, the ground, who, who knew uh, what to do and how to do it and when to do it. And uh, we just were overwhelmed. I mean, that's the bottom line. It, it kind of goes back to, you know, what you mentioned and, you know, forgive me for being a parent about it, but we were not prepared. We were ill-informed. We were under-budgeted with our military. And what they were doing was militarizing right after uh, the war in the 90s. They literally did what we were supposed to do is dust themselves off. They dusted themselves off and they began to militarize and prepare for you know, what was inevitable in 2020. In you know, in the Aprilian War in 2016, like I mentioned again earlier in the podcast, they threw a bone to see, you know, what they can get out of it. And they realized, and as you mentioned, you said, you know, the count of death was 18 when it was actually, what, 84 you said? Yeah. And first few hours. Yeah. And again, that was probably strategic to not only cause panic for our people, but to not give, you know, the enemy... Uh, information as far as, oh, look, you actually, instead of 18, you actually killed 84. But, you know, it actually caught up to us. And uh, instead of learning from that 2016 attack, um, we did the complete opposite. We did not militarize. uh, We did not do anything to protect ourselves. And it it all showed in 2020, unfortunately. You know, you, you say, you know, we were massacred. Uh, it it sucks hearing what you're saying, but it's the truth. I know, I know, I know it does, and and uh, it, it it hurts saying what I said, but I'm not going to deny the facts. I'm not going to deny the reality on the ground. Mm. I'm also going to say that during the first few days of the 2020 war, um, we put up a much stronger fight, and we were uh, we were able to pretend uh, to defend our borders much better than we did in 2016. Um, and I think thanks to many factors uh, that were implemented but uh, prior to the war. But still, we were overwhelmed. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we did. And, and reality on the ground is in the, in the 12 and a half hours that lasted, uh, that the that battle lasted in 2016, we had more uh, losses in 2016 in the first 12 hours than we did in 2020. Had the war in 2016 had had it continued, oh yeah, it, it would have, have been, been much, much worse. worse. So uh, overall tally was over 105 in 2016, but the first two three hours was 84. So if you if you put things in perspective, the 2016 war was a major was a bigger loss in just the first 12 hours than the 2020 was, and they were not able to penetrate through our defenses the, during the first two days. Um, but still, I mean, well, there was a stop to the war. It was a ceasefire right away. No, there wasn't. I mean, no, they kept going. Not the first two days. No, no, no. 2016, wasn't it? You no, know, I'm talking 2020. Ah, 2020, okay, yeah, yeah. 2020, no. It no. Was just, they just kept pushing But they, kept, they couldn't penetrate our defenses the first day or two. Yeah. Uh, the bottom line is we were not in a position to uh, defend our borders, defend our homeland. And, and uh, no matter what we, how much heroism we had shown, which we did, we, we just couldn't. No, ill-prepared. That's what it was. We were ill-prepared. We were not ready for it. Uh, and I remember, and very quickly, sorry, Ed, uh, 
uh, Dave, yes, uh, Vigen does live in Armenia. He's lived in Armenia for the past 18 years. He actually moved his entire family to Armenia 18 years ago. But go ahead. Uh, I remember I landed in Armenia on September 27 with me, my wife, and my little daughter. And right away I called Vigen and he didn't answer. And I figured, I'm like, he's probably there. So the first time he called me through WhatsApp, because communication was bad, I'm like, what's going on? The only thing he told me is like, it's not, we're done. Is exactly what he told me. And I was kind of like, I didn't want to hear it. I wanted to deny it because I don't want to believe it. But I already knew. Because back in 2013 and 14, I went to, my friend's son was in Hadrut, serving in Hadrut. When I went to the military base there and I saw what was going on just in Hadrut, I'm, I'm like, this is not what it's supposed to be. This is not what it's, this is embarrassing. I don't want to say bad things, but when I saw that, I'm like, and then when Hadrut fell, I was like, well, I knew because even though we had a big uh, army base there, but it was it was really bad. The overall, it was bad. And this is 2013, 14. I'm talking about not 2016, not 2020, not not the old regime, new regime, whatever you guys want to say. The overall, it was bad. It was it was embarrassing. It was laughable. But that's that's why we lost. I mean, most most of us, most of us in diaspora, didn't even go to Artsakh. That was one sad thing. We went to Armenia. We never went to Artsakh. Uh, and even people that went to Artsakh never went to Hadrut. Hadrut was another hour and a half drive. Nobody went to that region. They maybe went to Stepanakir, Ganza, Sardistad, and came back. But when you went to those outskirts and you see that nothing was built, there was nothing built. There was a population of maybe 1,000 or 2,000 people, in my opinion. So how are we going to defend that land if there's nobody living there? Uh, it was. Do you believe maybe if Armenia were to change their military stance as far as how the military is operated compared to how the United States operates their military, where it's not mandatory, it's optional, but, sorry guys, uh, but it being optional, you can reap governmental benefits from it. Whereas, you know, you serve your country when you leave, whether it's four years, six years, eight years, 10 years, and certain career benefits that come with it, it might help improve our army. Because when you look at, you know, some of the kids going into uh, the army as far as mandatory when they're 18 years old, most of them aren't built for it. It's a very old way of thinking, you know, building an army when you're 18 and then leaving and coming back when you're, you know, in your 20s. Do you think maybe changing that mentality, that system may help Armenia strengthen the army? Maybe get those individuals that want to maybe reap benefits from the military and the government might help us prosper? Um, or do you think our community is just too small for it? Our population is too small for it? Before I answer your question, I want to take a, a minute to answer to complete my answer on uh, your previous question, which was the difference between the current and the previous regimes. Good. And <coughs> I do want to say that the current administration um, for the past five years, uh, and I've actually not only said this, but I've said it in writing more than once in the past five years uh, where I've written articles about this. And I'm not one to write articles, but once in a while I get really upset three o'clock in the morning and I sit down and write an article and but this was one of those articles where in, when in 2019, maybe it was, I expressed my strong opinion about the fact that the uh, 
incoming administration, the uh, you know so-called revolutionary administration, was doing a horrible job at uh, bringing the Armenian nation together, which was the big promise, which was the big hope, which was the hope before they even existed, they came to power, that we as a nation build our country together. We as a nation bring our resources together. And uh, whether it's Armenians from Armenia or Armenians from outside of Armenia, we're all Armenians. We're all, as I said, citizens of the country. And uh, we, I understood why the previous administrations didn't do that because they, they felt threatened. And the new administration came on board, and unfortunately, they did the same thing. And yeah, they did some programs like the previous administration had, like Adi Dun or whatever. And they even appointed uh, a, a Spirki you know, coordinator. But the bottom line is uh, that they have done and are continuing to do a horrible job, and I'm going to be honest about this, at bringing the nation together of rebuilding Armenia. Um, It's mind-boggling to me to understand why uh, we don't have the leaders who who have the vision uh, to to be able to bring the nation together because we have resources, and uh, and our resources are so precious and they're so uh, time-sensitive. And if we don't do, if we don't bring those resources together today, much of it isn't going to be around 10, 20, 30 years from now. So um, it's not only unacceptable, but it's really sad that they're not doing that. Not only they promised to do that, but we all hoped that was our hope by, uh, by, you know, changing the regime. We thought the new administration is going to have the vision to do that, is going to have the know-how to do that. And I think they not only lack the, the know-how to do that, the new administration, uh, in terms of unprofessionalism, but also they don't have the vision to do that. So, and uh, this is not a political statement. It might sound like one, but it's not. Uh, this, is, this is what I believe in, and this is what I've seen living in Armenia during the past five years or and prior to that. So um, I think we need we need to really, truly uh, hold our government, current government, accountable for for not doing what they promised to do in terms of, um, you know, investing in our nation's uh, resources and bringing those resources together and truly uh, doing everything humanly possible to to uh, to to make sure we tap into every Armenian human soul and give them the opportunity to, to uh, do what they think they can do for the country. That hasn't been the case for 30 years and it's continuing to be that way. And it's really, really sad that it's that way. A good example of the complete opposite of that is Israel. And uh, Israel has always said that Israel is the home land, homeland of every person who feels a Jew, a Jew and Jewishism, Jewishism, Jew, Jewish people are not even, uh, Israelites per se, because they're you know it's a, it's a it's a religion after all. There are there are Jews from various countries of the world, various nations of the world. So, but Israel was so smart. Israelis, when they started their country, when they founded their country, said, you know what? It, you don't have to be an Israelite. You don't have to be a Zionist. Just be a Jew, and you're one of us. So, um, so they brought together millions and tens of millions of people. Uh, they associated those people with their country, and uh, we're not. You know, we're we're older than. Uh, you know, uh, most countries in the world were as a nation, as a country. Um, and we've had kingdoms going back to 4,000 years. And we still don't realize that if we want to rebuild our small country, uh, we need to bring everyone, everyone's effort together. And uh, this institution, this government is just as guilty as the last one of not doing that. And, 
you know, um, I'm sure they'll have a say as to, I'm sure they'll say that's not the case. That's not true. It is absolutely true. And I've, I've, I'm living in it. And I've, uh, our organization tried to make, and I'll give you guys one simple basic example, which is true. Two years ago in 2021, we embarked on a, on a project to change the charitable laws in Armenia, which are horrible laws. They basically encourage anyone from doing any charity work in Armenia, whether it's from Armenia and Armenian NGOs or foreign Armenian NGOs or foreign NGOs in general. And the level of ignorance and carelessness uh, demonstrated by the Armenian government at the time was mind boggling. I mean, they just didn't give a damn. And uh, not only didn't give a damn, they also didn't, uh, weren't uh, smart enough or, or, you know, they just didn't understand what we were, t- what we were saying. And, uh, and we brought together over 30 organizations, including the largest NGOs, charitable NGOs in Armenia and outside of Armenia. Some of them were over 100-year-old organizations. We were able to bring those organizations together. We held conferences. We, we put together uh, signatures, and, and uh, it just didn't help. You know, they didn't care. So um, I don't understand why any government uh, who's, who's, you know, exist, who's, whose priority should be and, and they claim to be uh, the betterment of Armenia wouldn't care about something like that in a country like Armenia where we've got major work to do. NGOs have a lot of work to do and to, to complement or to supplement the work the government is doing. NGOs have a place in every country, including the U.S., but especially in a country like Armenia. So, anyways, that's. Uh, I hope I've answered. I've answered the uh, listener's question. Um, but uh, your other question, I, I couldn't remember already. I, I already lost it. It was about the army and how. Yeah, changing the system of the army They're from able- mandatory to optional and having, you know, professional any, any, army. Yeah, a professional army. Anybody who serves the army reaps certain benefits from it. Or do you believe that system may work, or do you think? Uh, Armenia is not ready for a system like that, and the population is too small for people to actually commit to it. Because you look at some of the, the kids, 18 years old, that do join the army mandatorily. Um, uh, a lot of them are are lighter than the guns that they're holding. Well, there's two schools of thought <clears throat> on that, but I'll I'll give you my opinion. And I'm not a military expert. Um, well, I'll say that from up front, but I'll say this. First of all, it doesn't matter what kind of system we adopt. Um, I believe that 18-year-olds have absolutely no business being on the front lines. Absolutely no business. Um, there's never been a time in history, whether it's in the last 35 years or prior to that, or in any other country or in any other uh, time uh, in history, when you've got 18-year-olds on the front lines and um, the enemy who's attacking is attacking with 18 year olds. They're always attacking with their best professional special forces who are, who have 10 years plus of experience in combat, who, have, who are equipped with the best and, and uh, the most high tech equipment. And so we're talking putting 18 year olds on the front line who at best have two years of service experience, at best, a year it's and that, a half, yeah. because they spend five to six months training and then they spend a year and a half serving. So at best, they'll have a year and a half experience. If it's, if it's happening at the end of their service life. So we're talking those kids, you know, I call them kids. They're not kids, obviously they're adults, but 18 year olds who have an average of a year of experience on the battlefield or on the front line. And the enemy is, uh, you know, 10 year plus special forces. 
what are the odds of the 18-year-old succeeding? It doesn't matter how, how heroic or patriotic he is. Uh, it, it just it doesn't matter because, um, you know, fighting a war or winning a war isn't just about heroism or, uh, or patriotism or love for your country. It's about being prepared. It's about being a professional. It's about knowing uh, the, the weaponry and the equipment you're using and knowing the enemy's equipment as well, knowing uh, what they're good at, what, how they're trained. So all of those things, uh, it, it's, you know, there's no chance of the chances of winning that battle 18-year-olds versus special forces, you know, in their 30s, <laughs> just from the get-go, it's a lost, it's a lost case. So I think I'm against that, no matter what system we adopt. Um, on the other hand, um, we've got a problem today of badly compensating our uh, frontline sol- f- serving soldiers today. So we're talking about adopting, uh, you know, a professional army, uh, you know, changing everything to, to the professional side. And we're not even compensating our soldiers to prior way. Our, our, uh, today, a frontline serving soldier, and uh, mind you, the, the frontline serving soldiers get paid more than soldiers, rank and file soldiers, rank and file soldiers who do not serve, serve on the front lines. So if you're serving on the front line today in Armenia, you get paid an average of, uh, and this isn't a, a state secret. I mean, everyone, everyone knows this. The enemy knows this. This isn't like I'm putting out a state secret that I was able to obtain from the you know, defense uh, ministry. No, everyone knows this. It's a common knowledge. It's about $600 a month. So we're asking people to go serve on the front line, to put their life in harm's way, be away from their families for you know, months and weeks, weeks and weeks at a time, and you know, two or three weeks a month. And they're all, that's all they're going to get. And if you lose your life, God forbid? That's another problem. Uh, the benefits of martyrs and their families is not nearly what it should be. The compensation is not nearly what it should be. Sure, it's, it's serving. It's not a job. I'm the first one to say that. And we all realize serving in the Army and the Armed Forces is about serving, as we call it. It's not a job. But at the same time, those people have families too, and uh, they need to support themselves and they need to make sure that their families, and they've got kids, they've got wives, they've got, you know, fathers and mothers, and they want to make sure their families are uh, well taken care of. And uh, they don't want to have to worry about, we don't want our frontline soldiers to worry about their families. We don't want those kinds of soldiers. We want the soldiers, uh, we want soldiers who are uh, 100% at ease with the fact that their, their families are taken care of. Uh, and that's not the case today. So, yeah, we're talking about going to the professional, uh, you know, uh, model of armies, but um, we're not doing a good job with the professional, you know, group of soldiers that we have today. So we need to start taking taking care of those guys before we talk about making the entire army a professional army. Okay. People want you to run for office and prison. That's a conversation we have, but he says no. <laughs> no. Even... Last week when I was in Armenia, I'm like, come on, man. Let's make it happen. <laughs> He's too honest to run for office. Uh, That's true. Is there is there anything we missed as far as a conversation? Because obviously, you know, you're going to be flying back to Armenia. Uh, we don't know when you'll be back again to sit down and have a conversation with us, which, you know, it, it's kind of a cliffhanger at the same time. You know, uh, we get a nice update from you uh, every time you go to Armenia and you come back, it's very refreshing. And it was, you know, refreshing to have you here. But is there anything we missed? Well, when he goes back, I think he's going to seriously consider the 10, 15 minute weekly. That'll be between four and six in the morning. 
That's about the time. Listen, I have man. To sleep. You, it, listen, I'm vegan. It doesn't, you're you're it, taking away my two hours a night. Vegan. Sleep. It doesn't have to be live. Remember that. Yeah. It can it can be pre-recorded. You could send it to us. We'll add some captions on there. Boom. That's and it's posted. That's sometimes, yeah, it's not sometimes live. I force him to sleep. So if he does that, he's not going to sleep. Uh, yeah, you don't have to do it live. <laughs> but guys, no, thanks uh, for thanks for uh, just, uh, the opportunity. Hey guys, Vic here from uh, Yerevan. Just wanted to give you an update. Few minutes of that. Oh, all right. Look, if you have any questions? Comment below. I'll see you next week. You guys are so, you guys are so good at this, and, and I know <laughs> this might it. sound like a, like crazy for me saying this. I'm really not good at public speaking. I know. I know yeah, what well, you're going to you say, but I'm not. <laughs> you, you see that dialer right there? I don't do this for a living. You that dialer says three hours. That dialer says three hours. So. You guys are stimulators. You know, you 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 make people talk. You you just make people think, and you have a talent. I don't have that talent. Well, you know, good thing is you just you're you the have, ones. You're the reason I said what I said today. I mean, you made me think. You might you made me feel. You made me, uh, but you're good at that. I'm not. I don't have that gift. You can't stimulate yourself if you phone the hold the phone up or no. I'm stimulated enough. <laughs> well, you should see the Burbank I'm on, mayor. I'm on, <laughs> I'm on steroids without taking anything. So uh, I'll tell you seven. If I ask him to take a picture, he doesn't take a good picture. So on I'm his own, terrible. he's really bad. <laughs> Guys, uh, you could you could support uh, Vegan and Edgar's organization by visiting the website. Armand has it pinned on there. Supportourheroes.am. It'll take you directly to the donation area and. You could support a very, very good organization who's up in the front lines, helping families, helping displaced families. And uh, like we, as I mentioned, every dollar matters, whether it's a dollar you donate, $10, $20, $30, $100, doesn't matter. But at least donate something to help the organization. Uh, other than that, you know, we wish you a very... Uh, Oh, how would you say? I mean, see, if he has to go back to Armenia. Safe return. He's safe return home, I guess. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's his homeland. It's it's it's, home. it's, it's your it's, homeland. <laughs> 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 I was waiting for that. I I, I, uh, I wanted to trigger you there. Yeah, safe return flight Good home. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we again thank you for everything that you're doing. Uh, we appreciate you coming back on the show and. Uh, you know, having a great conversation with us. There was a lot we took away from this. There was a lot of our viewers that took a lot away from this as well. When our comments are quiet, that's a good sign. That means they're listening. So uh, we thank you again, again, John. Thank you, Edgar, Ed, as well. Edgar, yeah. as well. Thank yeah. you for setting this up for us again. Thank we you, guys, really for appreciate it. Uh, everybody, today's episode will be up and running on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all major platforms tomorrow. Um, we want you guys to have a great week. We want you guys to have a great weekend. And we'll see you all next Monday. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, guys.